Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Your DC Spotlight for March 21st, 2023. Back at home, back with my green screen. Uh, thank God. <laughs> I'm finally at home on a Monday. Um, still traveling this week, traveling every week of March, but this time I'm traveling at the end of the week to go to WonderCon. So if you're there, Anaheim, California, look for me, say hi. Uh, I think I still have some Comic Source lanyards uh, to give away. So if you want a free lanyard, track me down uh but yeah solid week some really decent books um yes. nothing that blew me away but nothing that was terrible either so yeah i thought it was a pretty good week rocky yeah uh, it's uh, yeah it's not bad it was a better week than last week and still i enjoyed i, I enjoyed a solid half of the books so uh, maybe a little bit more than that so some surprises and uh yeah so it'd be interested to to hear to hear your thoughts on some of them too. And so, yeah, uh, it's good. So let's, uh, let's get to it. Yeah. Let's kick it off with, uh, Batman, Worlds. Superman world's finest. We're up to issue number 13, still being written by Mark Wade, still being drawn by Dan Mora. Tamara Bonvillon does the color. Steve wants on letters. Uh, I did feel like art wise, it started off a little weak, a little loose uh, for being Dan Mora. We know what Dan Mora is capable of. But the first few pages, I was like, hey, is this Dan Mora? Sure enough, the credits page comes up. And yeah, it's Dan Mora. Uh, and then I felt like after the credits page, <laughs> the art sort of tightened up. Um, so yeah, I don't know, maybe just bit, you know, he's bitten off a little more than he can chew these days. Uh, I know he's typically really fast, but uh, be that as it may, the story kind of focuses on Metamorpho, Rex Mason. And once again, Mark Wade shows his love and knowledge of the DC universe because he gives a very succinct origin of Metamorpho. It doesn't feel expositional. It doesn't feel like he's spoon feeding us the origin. It makes sense um, expositionally in the story as uh, Bruce is kind of uh, educating Robin on, on who Rex Mason is, or actually it's a, uh, is it Bruce or is it? No, it's Clark it's Kent. Clark, right? Yeah, it's yeah. Clark. Yeah, telling uh, telling Jimmy Olsen who uh, who Rex Mason is. So uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Uh, Metamorpho, you know, he's been around a really really long time. Co created by Ramona Fraden, who's absolutely legendary creator. She's in her nineties now. Uh, you know, female artist back then was a really big deal. Uh, mm -hmm. And she's known for uh, three characters, mostly Aquaman, Plastic Man, and of course, uh, Metamorpho. So, um, yeah, I feel like for as long as he's been around, he he's sort of still a, a B or C-list character at best, you know, um, which is interesting because I think his origin is, is pretty cool. And uh, he has potential that's been untapped, which, again, kind of strange for somebody that's been around as long as he has. Uh, I think probably his highest profile gig, if you will, was he was a member of Batman and the Outsiders, the 80s series. And he's been a member of the Outsiders throughout um, its different iterations off and on. Um, but yeah, he's he's actually pretty powerful when you think about what he can do. And again, that's all explained here, the origin and what have you. And uh, then we're left with a little bit of a cliffhanger ending, which is kind of interesting as well. So I'm enjoying what Mark Waid is doing in Batman – uh, Superman world's finest, but <laughs> kind of similar. And you, again, you would expect this from Wade similar to, you know, throwing back to the old school Batman and Rod where it, when it was just 
world's finest, right? There were no subtitles. At one point, it was Superman, Batman, world's finest, and you know, DC's like, oh, Batman sells. We got to put the Batman name first. Uh, so, so anyway, that's how it's listed in the solicits. But back in the day, started way back in the '60s, I think, when it um, world's finest was kind of an anthology series. Way back when it first started in the '50s, and it might even have been before then um, in the Golden Age. But then eventually, toward the end of the '60s, it became just the Batman Superman team up book and it was just called World's Finest. And oftentimes they were sort of continuity light, right? Like Superman and his own book might be out in space. Batman could be trapped somewhere in the Arctic. But in World's Finest that month, they were still teaming up and, you know, investigating a crime in Metropolis or uh, or Gotham City or, or wherever, right? Uh, and Wade's kind of embracing that, right? Like this is not a book where um, Superman was ever on Warworld. It's not a book where Batman is on in that alternate reality because of failsafe. Like there's tie-ins um, to classic DC events and classic DC timeline, but you don't need to, you know, I say all that to say this, you don't need to read, be reading anything else to read this and enjoy it for what it is. So I enjoy that Wade is giving it sort of a, a timeless feel, right? It reminds me of what, uh, Pete Tomasi and Brad Walker did when they were doing their detective run. It's not grounded in any era, any specific continuity or timeline in the DCU. And that gives it a, a somewhat of a timeless feel. So yeah, a little nitpick, like I said, about the art at the beginning of the issue, but overall I thought this was really uh, a strong issue. A lot of fun, probably one of my top, maybe, maybe my favorite issue so far, but definitely in the top five. So what do you think? I enjoyed it. Uh, I, I particularly like the 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 focus. There was some focus here on Jimmy Olsen too. I thought Jimmy Olsen uh, w w got a little bit of the limelight here as well because this uh, this this picks up but uh, this is a murder mystery essentially somebody has murdered uh, simon stagg and simon stagg's daughter is sapphire who is the love interest of metamorpho rex mason rex mason became metamorpho because uh well he fell in love with sapphire when he was an archaeologist and uh, uh, sapphire's father simon stagg hated him and basically had one of his minions try to kill rex mason uh, and ultimately rex mason ended up being thrown into a pyramid and ended up being exposed to various chemicals and he ultimately became metamorpho and in a fit of depression he wanted to kill himself but uh his love sapphire's love for him prevented him from doing so and he became metamorpho that's it in a nutshell and to mark wade's credit he he retells that story in a manner in which clark kent is giving these details to jimmy olsen now because of rex mason metamorpho's relationship with uh simon stagg when simon stagg is murdered he basically, uh, he's the first suspect, as Batman points out. Batman tells Robin, the obvious suspect here, we can't ignore is Rex Mason. So they go and they check out uh, Metamorpho. And Metamorpho is quite upset that they would think that he would uh, stoop to mur murdering somebody. As you said, uh, Metamorpho was a member of Batman and the Outsiders. He sort of figures, Batman, you, you should know I, I, you know, you should know me better than that. I would never do that. But meanwhile, while all that is going on, this, this, this sort of... Uh, uncomfortable sort of questioning between you know the, the the world's finest team and metamorpho jimmy olsen is doing his job as an investigative reporter and lo and behold he does a lot of investigating and uh 
and he, he discovers, uh, much to the chagrin of Clark Kent, who finds it hard to believe, and Jimmy Olsen actually impresses Perry White, he discovers that the someone that has apparently even more of a motive to murder Simon Sag is Bruce Wayne himself. And so that's the cliffhanger that this issue ends on. And it's very well done. And I really like how this, it ended on that cliffhanger. And I should point out that this issue started off with some interesting sort of dialogue between Supergirl and Batgirl, making reference to the fact that in, in a number of previous, in last issue, Superman and Batman, uh, they they had a hard time with uh, Batmite and Mixias Pidlick. And uh, they, uh, for a time, they were, they were impersonating Supergirl and Batgirl. And so there was, there was some humor at the beginning of this comic transitioning into the main murder mystery. So I thought it was well done. Mark Wade knows exactly what he's doing. As you said, he's, an, he's just so good at telling a story that we, it's not even important where this fits into the timeline in terms of continuity. This could pretty much fit into everywhere. But the fact that Mark Wade can find a way to do it in such a way that he can actually make Metamorpho even more interesting while at the same time reminding us what the origin of Metamorpho is and the, and the fact that there was that sort of relationship dynamic between him and Sapphire and calling back to the memories of Batman and the Outsiders. It's just, this was, this was really well done and just a really good, uh, it's a really good start of a mystery that, you know, now we have, I mean, we've seen Bruce Wayne accused of murder before, but yet somehow when Mark Wade does it, it this does feel like it's uh, fresh and new. And I really like the fact that Jimmy Olsen is sort of stepping up to the plate uh, in his own and, uh, you know, finding the clues that Clark Kent probably missed because Clark Kent is, you know, unbeknownst to Jimmy Olsen, of course, and Perry White. Clark Kent obviously has a relationship with Batman that nobody knows about. So I thought, yeah, this was this was very well done. I this was definitely one of I think probably one of the better comics of the week. Yeah, agreed, hundred percent. Uh, okay, up next we have Superman issue two, written by Joshua Williamson, art and cover by Jamal Campbell, letters by Ariana Mayer. Campbell does his own colors, <clears throat> uh, so you know, digital painted and. Uh, his art here again, not just not quite as sharp as I've I've seen it in the past. It feels like he's using a little bit of a different style uh, on here. You know, previously we saw him um, Green Lantern Far Sector. We saw him on Naomi. Again, it just seems like he's using a little bit uh, more of a almost an animated, a looser animated style here. It still works, and the colors are are uh, they tend to be a little bit dark, which makes sense, right? Like the the whole story takes place at night. Uh, the parasite is set loose on Metropolis. And rather than his previous iteration or previous powers where the more energy he uh, absorbed, the bigger he gets. Now it's the more energy absorbs, he absorbs, he splits into more and more and more. So there's all these clones and they're overtaking the city. And at the end, we even see that they're infecting um, the, the, the other citizens of uh, Gotham. So they aren't just metamorpho clones taking over the city and absorbing uh, all the energy that's available. There's also uh, Metropolis citizens that are becoming infected, including Superman himself uh, at the end, a bit of a cliffhanger where he says, oh, no, uh, Parasite has become airborne. Meanwhile, uh, throughout all of this, Lex Luthor is imploring Superman, hey, work with me. Come break me out of um, Striker, uh, Striker's Island. Let me help you. Uh, and of course, Superman's like, let me deal with this emergency with this disaster that's going on. And then you and I will talk, Luther. I'm not about to go break you out of prison. Um, 
And we also learn that there's a sort of a cabal of, of mad scientists. Uh, one of them wants to call them themselves the secret order of mad scientists and others are like, ah, I've never agreed to that name. It's demeaning. Uh, would you rather us call us what we really are, homicidal geniuses? Um, and, and so, yeah, it's a bunch of uh, characters. I, I'm not familiar. I think they're all new characters. I could be wrong about that. Two of them are uh, yeah. brothers. Um, but basically, they, they are behind all these disasters that are sort of lining up. Uh, one right after the other to do what we're not exactly sure other than they want to take out Superman. Maybe they just want to take out Superman to prove they can. Maybe they have other plans and, um, you know, they know Superman will be uh, a detriment to that. So they're, they're trying to take him out. And the other part of it is they all hate Lex Luthor, right? Um, that's part of why they're uh, destroying Metropolis. So we've hit the ground running on in this series um, we're, and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, it feels breakneck pace. Um, I do wonder if Jamal Campbell, we know he's not the fastest artist. And, and when you see his art and know that he does the colors as well, you can kind of understand um, whether or not he can keep up to space remains to be seen. I hope so, because the story, the tone of the, the title so far, you know, I know we're only two issues in, but the, the tone of the story so far that Williamson is establishing fits what Campbell is doing very, very well. So, you know, it feels a little bit more super heroic. It feels a little bit more fantastical than what's going on in action comics, uh, Philip Kenny Johnson. Um, and I, I like that. I like that there's a kind of a, a different tone, a different feel between uh, the two. Uh, we also got introduced to a, a new character uh, in this issue that uh, pretty interesting, Marilyn Moonlight, who kind of a cross between like Zorro and uh, Ghost Rider, and I don't mean like the Johnny Blaze or Danny Ketch Ghost Rider with the flaming skull and the motorcycle. I mean the original Ghost Rider from Marvel, all dressed in white on a horse. She kind of reminds me of that a little bit. Um, talking to Superman about uh, Metropolis's nights being haunted, and um, I'm doing you a favor right now, Superman. I don't know how she's doing him a favor, uh, trying to warn him of ghosts. If you really want to do him a favor, she'd help him out with these uh, with these parasites. So it's kind of thrown in there. Uh, just a little seed planted, and then you know immediately we're switched back to the parasite storyline with Lois being one of the infected, and then uh, Superman infected, as I said. So, um, yeah, this is moving along really fast. I I like that we're not getting a chance to sort of catch our breath. Uh, one thing I do wonder about a little bit though is um, just kind of the way everything is set up in terms of the setting, right? Like we know Philip K. Johnson is doing more of a Superman family book. Here we're in Metropolis. We even see Supergirl and um, and John Kent. So I, you know, I'm just not sure. I haven't had a chance to have Williamson on the show and, and talk to him. like, is this going to be Superman focused? Is it going to, you know, we know Luther is going to be a big part of it. Like, what exactly are are we coming to expect here? Is it going to be all out action? You know, I think about when uh, Bendis was doing it. The action book was more of the kind of ground, almost Superman crime noir, as we talked a lot about. And then the Superman title was more of the traditional superheroic cosmic out, out in space or what have you. So is, is it divided that way? Or are they even thinking about it in that kind of tone? Who knows? Um, but they do feel very different, uh, but both very, very good. I, I, I can't remember the last time I was enjoying both Superman books this much uh, at the same time, especially when they're so wildly different. So uh, what do you think of this? 
I, I really enjoyed it. I, uh, you, you sort of nailed it for me when you said that it, it's, it's the pacing, it's the kinetic pacing. It feels like a, a, a lot seems to be happening and we're getting, we're getting to know some characters and we're getting the just the right amount of these characters. Like when Marilyn Moon, Moonlight shows up, I, I love DC comic Westerns and I would love if at some point in the future, we're going to see Jonah Hex. Not that we're going to, but whenever I think of DC Western, how can I not think of Jonah Hex? And when Super, when she shows up and her moonlight actually empowers Superman, heals him from the weakening of the parasites, all the multiple parasites, because the parasite, as you said, the parasite now not only grows in power when he sucks energy from people, but he multiplies. And so Superman, although massively weakened, was weakened, he was empowered up by the moonlight of Marilyn Moonlight, but then Marilyn Moonlight disappears. And as she disappears, Superman seems to he appears to look into the past of what I'm assuming is the the uh, American West in of how Metropolis looked in the, uh, during the late 1900s or 1800s or whatever. But very interesting. Who is Marilyn Moonlight? Uh, I should also give a call out to beautiful uh, covers. Uh, Marilyn Moonlight uh, Moonlight is, uh, there's a Zerdy cover. It looks amazing. And there's also another one of their uh, design covers as well uh, by Price, Tracy Price. And uh, that's, uh, that, that's Jamal Campbell. I don't, Jamal, I don't know. Yeah, his, like on Twitter, um, it's price as well. So I don't know if Jamal Campbell's just pen name or what exactly, but yeah, the one that says price on it is actually Jamal Campbell's cover. Yeah. Uh, but in any event, uh, it's gorgeous, you know, great covers. And uh, I, you know, like I said, very kinetically paced. Uh, they, they, there is some mad scientists here. It's kind of funny at first. I thought it was a little, all of a sudden, you know, this issue pretty much starts off after we're immediate, almost immediately introduced to these mad scientists. Graft, who's this wheelchair genius, and uh, his uh, sister, Dr. Far, or pardon me, she, Graft is this wheelchair genius, and then his uh Sister is Doctor Farm, and uh, they they're cutting up Bizarro, and they're toying with Kryptonite, and they're they're unleashing the, these parasites on Metropolis. And the other mad scientists are saying, "Hey, maybe we shouldn't do this." Where where you know they're but they're taking the initiative because they don't like Lex Luthor. Lex Luthor is off the playing field, so they want to take advantage of Luke, Luthor's absence. Now we do know that there's an enemy of Lex Luthor that's trying to take advantage of Superman. Is Dr. Farm or this Graft mad scientist, are they the enemy of Lex that's also after Superman? Maybe. We're not entirely sure. But we do know that these parasites continue to wreak havoc on Metropolis. Uh, with the help of the, uh, the the other members of the Superman family uh, are, are are creating a basically a, a massive um, uh, sort of ice mountains around Metropolis because apparently – one of the ways to uh, prevent the parasites from spreading is massive cold, intense cold. And so they're using their super cold breath to basically freeze the parasites from spreading uh throughout the entire world they're, they're, they somehow you want to talk about this being a Superman comic somehow the Superman family manages to evacuate the entire city metropolis which I can't help but chuckle because I mean I don't know what is that three million people you evacuated a city of you know I'm sure millions of people I find that hard to believe but hey who am I to say that this is a Superman comic Williamson is thinking really big here Superman is powered up and so when you have an, a powered up Superman the Superman family is c capable of extraordinary things literally evacuating the entire city of Metropolis and the only inhabitants of Metropolis now would appear to be all these 
parasites, which are spreading like, you know, just multiplying like crazy. How is Superman going to get out of this? Not sure. Marilyn Moonlight, with her moonlight, uh, she can power up Superman and help him counteract the effects of the parasite. Will she return? What are her origins? I don't know, but I'm really enjoying asking the questions. And yeah, I'm looking for, I'm really looking forward to where this is, uh, this is headed. And, uh, you know, kudos to Williamson. You know, second in issue in a row. I mean, I don't know. I don't know anyone. I haven't heard anything negative about his Superman issue so far. Everyone seems to be having a blast, and uh, I'm right along with him. Yeah, I, I I agree. Like I said, it's been a long time since I've been enjoying Superman titles this much. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Black Adam. We're up to issue number nine. Uh, your your volume. You, I can't hear you. That was weird. I can uh, hear you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Black Adam 9, uh, as I said, Christopher Priest on script, Eddie Barrows pencils, Eber Fur on inks, Matt Herms does colors, Willie Schubert on letters. Uh, it's Fall East of Egypt, book two. So, you know, we know that this is, um, I guess it's 12 issues, but it's so interesting that this is book two. The first, So the first one was seven issues, and I guess the second story is only five issues. But, um, as this has gone on, it has sort of settled in. We we know that Priest can be, I don't want to say overly complicated, but uh, his stories, they, they kind of require some investment, a little bit of work. And as you read them, certainly if you read them all together, you know, if you were to read all 12 issues, it's going to make more sense. Um, and the other thing is it, it, you know, when the series started off, it was when the Black Adam movie came out. So it, it ties into that a little bit. Um but what I'm enjoying most about where the series has gotten, it it humanizes Black Adam in a way that I haven't seen done before, right? Like I think maybe part of the reason the movie didn't work that well, um, and, and you know, you and I both really enjoyed it, but you know, by all metrics that movie studios use, it was it didn't do that well. And uh, I just saw an article recently where Dwayne Johnson swears he's never doing another superhero movie, and obviously there's not going to be a sequel and all that. And I, I feel like it's too bad because I think. People sort of missed the mark on it. And if they'd had a chance to to read something like this or have a chance to sort of understand who Black Adam is rather than just uh, the rock, you know, sort of floating through walls and, and whatnot and scowling everywhere, they, maybe they would have had a little bit more context and understood a little bit more where he's coming from because we certainly get that here. And what's interesting is that Priest is – he's slowly doling out the origin – of Black Adam, and in here we see uh, the scene where um, the wizard Shazam—I never remember how to pronounce his uh, Memoragan, Memoragan, Memoragan. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Exactly. Memoragan? I always stumble over it too. So I'll, just, I'll say the wizard Shazam, uh, which we know is played by Jimon Hansu in in uh, the Fury of the Gods Shazam movies uh, and the previous Shazam movies as well. But uh, the Fury of the Gods is out in theaters right now. Um, but be that as it may, we see the moment when um, when Black Adam stops being Tet Adam and becomes Black Adam because he has sort of betrayed um, the the idea of what he's supposed to be doing, uh, freedom and uh, fighting for justice, and he's sort of gone over and, and let the sort of worst angels of his nature sort of prevail. And instead of fighting for justice, he's fighting for vengeance. He's, he's a little more self-centered. And we, and again, we see 
the wizard Shazam banish him um, and, and dub him black Adam from this day forward, your name shall be black Adam and, you know, throws him out to the universe's farthest star. And, and that's basically his golden age origin. And then supposedly when he come, when he shows back up in the forties, it's taken him all that time, right? Cause if we're talking ancient Egypt when he got banished and he has journeyed back and it's taken him, you know, thousands of years to get back here. So again, Priest is enriching, he's explaining, and he's humanizing Black Adam in a way that this series is, is and I've said this before, the series is making me want to go back and, and do like a deep dive into Black Adam. And let me read all of his appearances kind of in you know chronological, not publishing order, but chronological order. Like, let's see his journey, right? Because... When he first was around and in the 80s and 90s, he certainly was just an out-and-out -out villain. And as time has gone on, partly because he's popular, partly because of what Jeff Johns did in the 52 series and the Black Adam series that spun out after that, he's a somewhat of a popular character. Uh, you know, not I won't go certainly won't go so far as to say he's Harley Quinn, but in that way, right? Like Harley Quinn has made that journey from outright villain to anti-hero to where she's a hero. Black Adam hasn't swung that far. I certainly wouldn't call him a hero, but he's not that out-and-out -out villain anymore either. Um, he's he's more in the gray area, uh, era, uh, area, and uh, part of it has to do with his arrogance and his self-centeredness, right? Like the whole reason he got banished in the first place. He still is inherently that guy, right, that cares more about himself and his country, rightfully so. Um, and that was something else that was a big part of the movie, uh, more so than you know doing what might be considered the right thing. He's going to do what's best for his people and what's best for himself. And if that puts him at odds with the Justice League or Superman or Batman or whomever, you know, he doesn't care. And he's got the power to back that up. So, um, and that's always been the way he's he's been portrayed, probably for the last I'd say fifteen to twenty years. Um, but again, there's been sort of a two-dimensionality to that, and Priest is is breaking that down and making him seem more human, making him seem more vulnerable, making him seem more relatable. And again, I think it's really, really interesting. Um, and again, not not that Priest isn't the right writer to do this. He may, he may be the perfect writer to to set this up, but I think in order for it to be more accessible and a little bit more widespread and accepted as sort of the new status quo, uh, it would have to be in the hands of a writer who's a little more accessible because again, Priest requires you to put in a little effort um, just because a lot of what he brings, he brings in so much, kind of like Grant Morrison in a way where Morrison goes back and mines, you know, really obscure DC lore um, in a way Priest does the same thing, but he's pulling from everywhere, not necessarily lore, but pulling from science or polit history, uh, that sort of thing. And he, he'll make kind of offhanded comments or remarks about it. And if you really want to have a full understanding of it, you've got to kind of go and do your, do your research, right? Like, is this something that really happened? Or is this something that Priest has created, like these Acadia gods that he's created for this story? where he's referencing it, but but there actually is nowhere to go and look it up, right? Like I'm sure the Bible in Priest's head has all that information, but we're not necessarily privy to that. Um, so I almost hope, or I almost think that maybe the best thing DC could do 
would be to uh, when they do the collection for this is to give us priest uh, scripts with all the notes and the, you know kind of the the expositional stuff, the, the explanations for the uh, artists and what have you. And that would give an even richer uh, story. So uh, the Eddie Barrow's art is fantastic. Um, I, I This may be my favorite issue of the series so far, which I find myself saying a lot about DC books. I'm really enjoying DC um, over the last few weeks individually, right? Individual issues. We, we talked last time about how the ship overall seems a little bit rudderless. Um, and it, it feels like it's missing the forest for the trees, but man, some of those trees are just really, really interesting. So, um, what do you think ab about this issue? Well, this was, uh, if you were going to buy one issue of the first, this is the ninth issue of all the yep. issues so far, uh, issue nine, this, this is the one that actually is the most interesting because it, this is, it's almost as if I didn't know better. I think Christopher Priest decided, well, I'm, I'm going to maybe spell things out just a little bit more clearly in this issue because it was a little, it's been a little wonky in some of the previous issues, putting it all together. Uh, you and I have managed to do so, but there's been a few issues where I had to multiple read it a few times, but this one I really enjoyed and I really enjoyed, uh, I obviously the art's fantastic. Uh, this is, you know, again, what, what, I actually wish one of the things I'll, I will straight out say that I think if the Black Adam movie had just focused on the past and focused exclusively on Black Adam's past origin and stayed in the past and not brought him and not the present, but just ended with him floating in space and coming back to Earth at the end, I think it would have been a better movie, uh, even though it wouldn't have involved the Justice Society because I I. And I, I get that, and I, I will compliment Christopher Priest for making me think that, because what I like what he brought here is that, you know, this is actually Teth Adam is explaining to Malik on his, at, uh, beside him on the, in Malik's in a hospital bed recovering, it's Black Adam himself who is telling Malik the lessons he learned when he was White Adam. Now that's, because he was always Black Adam before. This changes the origin that when, when Teth Adam stole the power of Shazam from his nephew Amon and became and, and basically stole the, 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 the Shazam powers from his nephew and betrayed the wizard Shazam. Uh, he became White Adam and then he served 22 pharaohs before killing the 22nd pharaoh and becoming the pharaoh himself, the powerful White Adam. And he confused justice with vengeance. And that's how he ruled. And ultimately, it wasn't until he was confronted by his former slave master, uh, Ibak, who uh, that ultimately leads with a battle uh, with uh, another character who is a, a, a colleague of the wizard. And ultimately, he ends up, uh, the, the wizard ends up confronting Black uh, uh, White Adam and then punishing him by shunning him off to space basically turning him from white Adam to black Adam, punishing him where he floats in space for 2,500 years. And then he gets infected with sort of space dust, which becomes sentient and that become the Egyptian gods that, that are looking for him throughout these previous nine issues. And in particular, the Egyptian God of war is what gave Malik's girlfriend the ring to give to, uh, to black Adam to say that, look, we're coming for you. So, so these Egyptian gods, the, <laughs> who empower, uh, who, of which Black Adam gets his power from, uh, they're they're coming for Black Adam, and not exactly sure what's going to happen. Exactly what their motivations are per se, we know that Ibak, his former slave master, is still alive. Uh, uh, we know this uh, this Oni Grace character, who is the wife of the 
she's the wife of the um, uh, Kandak minister who was murdered. Uh, Shakir Nasser, he was he was the leader of uh, Khan, Kandak. Uh, he was the pardon me the the opposition leader of Kandak. Shakir Nasser, his wife Oni Grace is kind of glad her husband is dead, but Black Adam is being blamed for his murder. So we got political machinations. We got a callback to Black Adam's origins with the White Adam. We got Malik, who's the new sort of White Adam on it, recovering. We got all these moving pieces in place, and it's really starting to to take. It, the, the story's really coming into its own, and I'm glad I stuck with it. I still think that that the first, probably the first seven to eight issues were a little bit, you know, uh, could have been a little bit better paced. But uh, I'm glad I stuck with it this long because I, I'm enjoying this, and I do think uh, I do think maybe uh, it's too bad the Black Adam movie didn't do better because I think a lot of people could might might enjoy themselves, like you said, if they've been sticking with this series. Yeah, uh, again, I think just they should have put it out sooner. And as much as I'm enjoying this, you know, we are DC heads. Uh, I don't know that this is for you know somebody who enjoyed the movie because it's it's just so dense. So anyway, yeah. moving on, we have a deceased War of the Undead Gods issue number seven from writer Tom Taylor. Pencils are by Trevor Hairsign and Lucas Meyer. Inks by Andy Lanning and Lucas Meyer. Colors by Rain Barreto. Letters by Seda Timofante. Uh, there are a couple really awesome covers. This is the penultimate issue, um, and there's uh, there's one uh, cover in particular that's an homage to Prince's Purple Rain cover for uh, that that album that, that everybody knows, um, and it's been homaged you know plenty of times in comics and and other things, and it's it's, it's really really cool. Um, I have to say I was a little bit disappointed in this issue though overall. Uh, the Trevor Hairsign art is fantastic as it has been throughout. It's it's gritty and very visceral, and um, it's got a lot of texture to it, which really suits the the type of story that Tom Taylor's been been telling throughout. And this deceased property has been very very well, well received. That's why the initial six or eight issue series has spawned all these others. And I think this is the last one. I think I've heard Taylor say. Um, and I feel like up until now, it's been paced pretty well. But this issue felt a little bit choppy. Um, and, and it just felt like things were happening so fast. It was one of those situations where we're being told what's happening rather than being shown because it needs to move along so fast because there's only one issue left. I think the, the series really could have done with a couple more issues. Where it does succeed really, really well just like last issue, this issue's um, narrated by Alfred, Alfred Pennyworth, who is now the Spectre. And there's one page in particular where it's a close-up of him. Uh, it's almost a full-page splash, and he's flying toward the kind of the camera. Um, and it looks like Alfred's face, but, you know, completely white. And seeing the Spectre with Alfred's mustache is just really interesting looking. Um, but in those moments where Alfred is narrating – uh, that's where we get the the jumps, right? Where he says, oh, then I did this and then I did this and whatever. Um, and so that's the choppiness. But at the same time, there are other moments where Alfred is talking about the emotion and it's giving us some of those uh, trademark uh, Tom Taylor character moments, which are working really, really well. And we get a couple of other character moments for some other uh, people as well. There's a great John Kent moment. There's a an Oliver Queen moment that's interesting as well um so it, it just it feels so uneven in terms of pacing 
And again, I don't necessarily fault Taylor because I think he's just running out of room um, because it did, the series did have so much time to breathe early on. And now I think he got to this issue and he's probably like, Oh man, I only have one left. I need to move things along, um, you know, much quicker. So uh, we see that dark side is going to be an ally now. Again, it just feels like what really you finally defeat dark side in the penultimate issue so that now they can fight the big bad. There's only one issue left to fight the big bad. Um, so yeah, it just overall, I have to say that the series has been, and it's felt great up until now, but then all of a sudden, like we're moving super fast here with the last two, two issues. And yeah, I just wish they could have given them a couple. I mean, if it's selling well, why not give, give it the series, the space that it, that it needed. So I don't know. I'm not, you know, I'm not privy to the editorial details or what have you, but um, yeah, I, I enjoyed the previous issue more than this one, and it's all down to the the pacing. I mean, I still think the concept and um, the emotional moments, you know, uh, Alfred being Spectre and all that, really cool, really interesting. Um, but for me, the pacing was just kind of wonky, and I, I worry about everything getting wrapped up too quickly with only one one issue left. So. Uh, what do you think, Rocky? Did this work for you? It, it did, and I actually agree with you. When I, I actually wish that what's um, what's been fun about this cease from the beginning are the cool fanboy moments where you know characters fighting each other in zombie-like or anti-life states that are absolutely insane scenarios, but so much fun. Uh, and I just I wish that Tom Taylor had was given more pages to play here and Trevor Harrison's art was giving more pages to shine. I mean, in particular, we were all looking forward to watching Lobo kick some ass and we got very little Lobo in this issue. Now, there was a pretty cool scene with Lobo shoving the cure down Darkseid's mouth and having his arm bit off. Uh, but that was was necessary to cure Darkseid of the anti-life plague. Uh, that was pretty cool. And uh, we did what we, we did see uh, Lobo, uh, you know, Tell Light Ray to shut the f up as he uh, ripped his head off. So there were we did have some Lobo moments. I would have liked to have seen more, but I'm selfish that way. I mean, hey, come on. Uh, there there were moments between Big Barda, Mister Miracle, and when they confronted their their son Jacob, but only one page. There was a cool moment with uh, Alfred as the Specter. Uh, the aftermath of him killing the uh, killing Mixias Patelic. Uh, a, a pivotal scene where Damien becomes infected with the anti life and. Alfred, you know, as he dies, Damien telling Alfred, don't don't embrace the vengeance, don't embrace the vengeance, which is kind of hard for Alfred to do because he's the specter. That's the spirit of vengeance. So good luck, Alfred. But Alfred, Alfred's moral victory, overcoming his desire to be vengeful and instead fly to another fly to the other earth to obtain the cure, to bring it back, uh, to do battle, uh, to 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 defeat the forces of Darkseid and Warworld. Superboy, uh, John Kent getting in front of the cannons as, as Warworld, you know, fires its cannon like the Death Star. I mean, and uh, Cyborg uh, taking over a, a Brainiac and and releasing the people of uh, the, the citizens, enlarging the, the citizens of Kandor uh, who are uninfected uh, in order to help with the battle against the forces of the anti-life. I mean, all of this happened in this issue and I've missed some stuff. And so 
this was really epic and really fun. This is a fun read. I highly recommend it. But I guarantee you, anybody who reads this, you're going to be like, Jason and I, you're going to be like, man, I wish we had more of this stuff, more of the pages, because it's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, like I said, I, you said it, I'm saying it again. It's just some really good heroic moments and, uh, you know, heartfelt moments with Damien and Wonder Girl and all the stuff, everything that's developed from the beginning throughout this, from the beginning of Deceased till now. This is all coming together rather well. Uh, and you know what? There are worse criticisms to say than I wish we had more pages. <laughs> but we're going to say it. We wish this was longer. And, uh, you know, and it's and it's funny because Tom Taylor is often criticized. And in fact, I'm going to be criticizing him on a Nightwing this week where, you know, sometimes he just he has a habit to decompress some stories far too much. While here he, he's doing the exact opposite here. He's I wish he decompressed this story a little bit to give us more of these cool moments. You know, he, he seems to drag out the character moments. Uh, some in my view, almost too much sometimes. And, on, and then on, on the cool plot moments, he tends to truncate them too much, compress them. So I, I wish he'd have more of a, sometimes I wish he had a little bit more of a better middle ground, but uh, all in all, it was still a, still an enjoyable issue. Yeah. I, again, it's, it, to reiterate what Rocky's saying, it's like, it is a cool moment when, you know, Cyborg fights the infected, the anti-life infected Brainiac, the anti-life equation infected Brainiac, and, and then manages to use the Brainiac technology to, you know, bring the citizens of Candor back and, you know, restore them and, and have them fighting. And that turns the tide. We want that to be explored. Give us more of what Brainiac did, you know, that, that kind of thing. There's not the space for it. And we understand that. Um, but if it had another issue or two, those are the kind of moments or, or little, you know, story ideas, plot points that we, that are really interesting and cool that can't happen in regular continuity. So, you know, why wouldn't we want a little more of that, to be explored. I mean, even when you see um, Cyborg after he's absorbed Brainiac, he's got the little purple, like glowing lights all over him, like Brainiac had. He's he's <laughs> completely assimilated. So yeah, cool. that, that should be explored a little bit more, but there's just not the space. So uh, anyway, <laughs> moving on, we have the final issue of GCPD: The Blue Wall, written by John Ridley, drawn by Stefano Raphael, colored by Brad Anderson, lettered by Ariana Mayer. This does wrap up the story. Uh, it's very, I won't say very dark, but it is dark. It, uh, but there's a little kind of grain of hope. Um, but I do have to say that it almost feels unrealistic the way that it, that it ends, right? But I don't blame John Ridley for that necessarily, right? Like this is a comic series. This is from DC. It can't end on some nihilistic note. It's got to end with, you know, the story being wrapped up and, and to some extent, the good guys winning and, you know, uh, looking to a better tomorrow and that kind of thing. But, you know, really, if you look at this as sort of an analog for the state of uh, law enforcement in the U.S., like there is no light at the end of the tunnel right now. So in that way, it felt a little like a little bit too neat, a little bit too cliched. Um, but it wasn't unexpected that it would wrap up like this. Uh, I almost feel like this story, maybe more so than any other, um, could have just been left without a conclusion and it would have felt more realistic, but I, you would have had fans up in arms, you know, if we didn't get any sort of, uh, 
resolution to the story that was that was going on. So I understand why it played out the way it did. And, you know, to Ridley's credit, if he had ended on a, a note where Danny Ortega had been killed and everything ended in violence and kind of messy and um, everything kind of went to crap for Montoya, it would almost been more cliched than to have her, you know, be the one to bring Ortega in and have the story somewhat resolved, um, the, the major conflict anyway, uh, resolved. So, you know, I, I give him credit for that because he was sort of in a position where he's damned if he does and he's damned if he doesn't because this has been a very realistic and grounded series throughout. But like I said, if, if you're keeping it real, like, you know, the state of law enforcement in the U.S. right now or, or you know, not just the U.S., but a lot of places where it's become becoming more and more authoritarian, um, then it doesn't it doesn't resolve. It doesn't have an ending. It doesn't have it's not clean at all. It's messy. But this is fiction. This is the DC universe. And again, I think you would have had people that they wouldn't have understood why it ended that way. They would have wanted, you know, more of a uh, an ending like this, even though it feels a little bit. It just feels a little bit uh, – it lacks verisimilitude, I guess, to use uh, a word that Rocky's fond of. It just – it lacks a feel <laughs> of, of authenticity um, when you you know compare this with sort of real-life politics and, and what have you because it has been spot on with you know racism, systemic racism, the problems with law enforcement, um, the white supremacy, all that, all that stuff. Um, Ridley's done a fantastic job of – of touching on those, uh, touching on those points, and the fact that there are no easy answers right now um, for us as a society. Um, but in the end, this wraps up pretty, pretty neatly. Um, even if Montoya is left scarred, which again, um, maybe more so than anything, that is what you take from this series, and and maybe the most real part of the series, because for for Renee, it isn't. Uh, it isn't all wrapped up in a nice neat bow, right? She's she's scarred by this. She lost her brother. She lost her future sister-in-law. She lost her goldfish. Um, so, yeah, I, th this was a fantastic. This was a fantastic series. I, I expect this to stand the test of time. I expect it to be evergreen at DC. I think it'll do really, really well and in, in trade for years to come. So, what were your thoughts? Uh, well, I'm. I, uh, I'm, I'm curious, may, you can elaborate after I'm done giving my little uh, diatribe here, but I, I think this, for me, this possessed, it, it, this possessed verisimilitude, there's that word again, I, it, 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 I thought it was consistent throughout the series. But having said that, there are some people I know who just don't like this series, I think, because of the content. And because they just don't, they just, they don't like the subject matter. And, uh, and in fact, there is a warning at the beginning of every single issue. All six issues had the warning at the beginning saying this deals with racial, racial uh, issues and what have you. Uh, Renee Montoya, what, what's interesting here is uh, John Ridley, very, very clearly, what I admire when it, he did is that this feels like a Gotham Central series, like a continuation of that. And Renee Montoya here, she doesn't really do much as the question. This is Renee Montoya, just the cop, the commissioner. And she's, as she says at the end of this issue, you know, she, as she, you know, as she 
gets to know the the potential love interest at the end of this issue she says i'm the, i'm the police commissioner she opens up and she says i'm an alcoholic and 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 of course we already know that but we also know that she she had to overcome quite a bit here she's had a tr- an extraordinary amount of loss here and and the way this kind of resolves it doesn't exactly resolve neatly i mean it i mean basically the this danny ortega character who's uh who is a, a cop who murders who basically uh, because of the systemic racism in the department, he snaps, he loses it, and he, he kills Renee's, Renee's brother and sister-in-law, and he basically kills a bunch of cops. And so they're looking for him, and his buddy, and his buddy he goes to his, brother, his fellow cop, Eddie, uh, because he wants Eddie to help him out and join him in his cause against the department. And Eddie essentially turns on Danny. And then his other friend, another fellow officer, Samantha, kept his cell phone, and Renee Montoya in this issue confronts her. And even though Samantha's hiding the evidence in the cell phone that could locate Danny Ortega, you know, Renee realizes why Samantha kept it. And she didn't report Samantha. She says to Samantha, it's okay. You're not going to get in trouble. Just say you, 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 you know, I'll say I found it at the crime scene. There was a different place you forgot to look. And so Renee actually helps cover up the fact that an officer, one of Danny Ortega's friends, was actually covering for him. And, and he's a mass murderer. So, you know, we see the we see the very the, we see the, the it's not black and white. There's a lot of gray in this. There's a lot of corruption, but there's there's multiple level, levels of the good and the bad. And it, it really is. It's 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 almost like, you know, this is this series is called, you know, the blue wall. The blue wall is actually very gray. <laughs> and that's what I like about it. Nothing is really clear cut. And everyone, everyone in this series is flawed in some way, especially Renee Montoya in many ways. She's the balance. She's the one that's got to ride that fine line between, you know, uh, between, you know, siding completely with Two-Face as she potentially could have earlier in the series versus, you know, you know, staying on the side of the angels. And despite, you know despite being an alcoholic and despite having a screwed up uh, sense of self-worth and while at the same time trying to be a commissioner of arguably uh, a city now that's probably worse than even Bloodhaven, um, thanks to Nightwing doing such a good job making Bloodhaven such a safe place to live. But in any event, I really enjoyed this series. I agree with you that I hope that it's going to, it deserves to be on the same level, I think, as Gotham Central because uh, there, Gotham Central had multiple story arcs over like 30 some issues uh, this was on par with any of those story arcs uh, that were done by uh, Greg Rock and Ed Brubaker in my opinion yeah I agree and I, I think it will I think it will stand I think, I think it will stand the test of time uh, but obviously uh, time will tell so uh, all right up next we have the one minute war part six give me liberty from writer Jeremy Adams pencils are by Roger Cruz George Kamambatis and Fernando Passerman, inks by Willington Diaz, uh, George Comenbatis, uh, and Eau Claire Albert, colors by Luis Guerrero and Matt Herms, letters by Rob Lee, uh, Barry Allen, I almost said Barry, Barry West, Barry Allen comes up with um, a way for the Flash family to take the fight to the fraction. Um, it makes sense what he plans on doing. Basically, they're going to overload the antenna that the fraction used to tap into the speed force because if they if they can make the fraction move fast enough they will actually go back in time and if they go back in time far enough um then it, this whole entire war will never have happened 
So it's it's pretty interesting when you think about it in those terms, um, what they're planning on doing. Whether or not it's going to work or not, you know, remains to be seen. Um, but you know, a, as this series has throughout, it's really interesting. It's really fun. Um, Jeremy Adams does a fantastic job. One of the things I will say though is that uh, you know, there's three artists on this issue and we've talked before about how uh, we're big fans of what Roger Cruz did on the Flash series and how his art here hasn't felt as as clean as as polished as finished whatever term you want to use that feels even more so here when you have three different artists so Cruz does the beginning uh Combatis does the middle and then um at the end we have the the Fernando Passern pages which you know, it's more of the DC house style. It's more of the kind of the, the type of art that, that we're used to seeing. Very tight lines, very classic superheroic. And it, it just feels so disjointed. And gr granted, they at least try to separate the Passerine art out uh, to where Wally West is because he's not dead like everybody is, seems to think, uh, but rather is at this place that they're uh, in the future, I, I guess, because uh, Gold Beetle is there. Um, they're calling Flash World. Um, so it you know it does make sense that you try to divide it up um, from that perspective, but it, it doesn't do the art of the first two artists any favors in 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 comparison because it's so much cleaner and so much tighter. Um, so yeah, that I think that's a, a bit of a problem. This did feel like a little bit of a setup issue, um, which kind of leads into the last issue um, of the Flash War. Um, so in terms of action and and what have you, there's still plenty of action, but. It does feel a little bit like a, a setup issue, but you know, it's it's Jeremy Adams, it's the Flash, so it's a lot of fun, and there's some great one-liners and and great character moments as we've come to expect from him. So, um, but yeah, to, to reiterate something that Rocky has said throughout this entire run, it, it's like, man, DC editorial, you should have put an A-list artist on this, and it would have probably gotten even more critical acclaim. Um, and again, it's not to to disparage any of the artists that are on it, but we all know that, you know, comics is a visual medium and there are certain artists who, whose name is going to draw people in. Like now, not that this ever would have happened in a million years because he's way too busy and he's too old to, <laughs> to uh, do a monthly series, let alone one that's coming out every two weeks. But could you imagine what the sales numbers on one minute war would be if Jim Lee drew the whole thing? Yeah. Like it would have blown the doors off. So anyway, I, I enjoy it despite the fact that, you know, the art hasn't been my favorite and hasn't been really consistent, but uh, overall it's been a, a fun story. So what are your thoughts? Well, I uh, just to build on what you're saying. I, I, this is the, the fun just keeps on coming. I mean that the Flash family, this really is a Flash family defeating the fraction. This is the Flash family who are embracing a, a master plan put forward by Barry Allen, which is, as you said, once they break through that the speed force wall that the fraction has created around, I believe, Central City, once they break through, they rather than destroy the spire that, the, that, that is that is spinning, they're going to charge it up and get it to pass the speed of light. And when you pass the speed of light, the idea being, according to Einstein and Einsteinian physics, you're going to go back in time. And the idea is that uh, Barry Allen's theory anyway is that 
you're going to go back in time and everything is going to be exactly as it was before the fraction were even there. That sounds a little bit Duke Ek Machina to me. Very, very convenient. Could it happen? Well, you know what? I don't care if it does because I like the idea and I know Impulse, Impulse loves the idea, you know, because even Impulse could guess that, huh? you know, because Impulse knows something about going back in time, too. But you know what? The Flash is, when it comes to, you know, going back in time and changing time, the Flash is, generally speaking, haven't had an all lot of, haven't had a whole lot of luck doing that. But we'll see how it turns out next issue. What is particularly interesting here, I want to draw attention to everyone, is at the end of this issue, we finally see where Wally West ended up. And he ends up in a place called, which uh, they're calling uh, Planet Flash, or used to be called Time Point. And people, you know, Jeremy Adams has stated, he said in your, when you interviewed him, and he said in other interviews, Jeremy Adams didn't like Heroes in Crisis either. He didn't like what Heroes in Crisis did to Wally West. And he basically, I know he alluded to something when you interviewed him, Jace. He said that, you know, he wanted to basically undo a lot of Heroes in Crisis. And lo and behold, all the people that were killed in Heroes in Crisis appear to be alive on Planet Flash. We see Commander Steel, Jacking Thunder, Hotspot, Gunfire, Red Devil, Gnark, the Tattooed Man, Protector, and Blue Jay are all still alive. These people, we thought Wally West, we thought Wally West had unintentionally killed them, or rather killed him at the time but then it was revealed that it it wasn't really his fault and but now it appears that to completely erase all the harm done by heroes in crisis even if it was by accident they appear to all be alive and so thank you jeremy adams for permanently without any ado whatsoever removing the taint of heroes in crisis i mean literally we can now say that heroes in crisis did not kill anybody <laughs> it would appear and so uh, yeah so it's going to be interesting to see what does planet flash have to do with the fraction if anything is this just sort of a little side subplot how is this going to be addressed in the final issue of one minute war i'm not sure but i gotta tell you man with with the wonderful moments leading up to this and uh, the, the 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 flash family uh and you know just coming together in this issue, building to a climax, taking on the fraction uh, with Miss Murder and with uh, with the captain of the uh, fraction guard. Uh, the captain, of course, wants to impress the empress of the fraction uh, in their efforts to try to pierce the speed force wall, to power up the spire, to go back in time and undo all that's been wrong, to Wally West waking up on Planet Flash. A lot happened in this issue. Uh, I I almost feel compelled to say what we did. What, I want to say to Jeremy Adams what I said to uh, what we what we said to Tom Taylor just a few moments ago, and that is, I wish we had another issue, <laughs> and we do. But I kind of want this to be de more decompressed. But we shall see. I'm really looking forward to the final issue here. So, good stuff. Yeah, I am as well. And it's not just that I want more more of this uh one minute war i just want more jeremy adams on flash i'm so so disappointed that he's moving on to uh something else i want don't get me wrong i want him on green lantern but i want him on flash as well <laughs> yep uh, I hear okay so we, up next we okay. have uh catwoman number 53 uh, Tinny Howard is uh, handling the writing. Nico Leone on art. Veronica Ganditi does the colors. Lucas Catoni on letters. Uh, 
again, like this seems to be a running theme this week. We, I've seen Nico Leone's art on this be way cleaner. It felt a little messy. It felt a little unfinished. It just didn't feel as polished. Remember when we we first had Nico Leone on this and I think maybe he was doing the colors also and, and now he's not. Maybe that's the difference. But you remember how slick it felt like there was a lot of uh, like neon colors, a lot of pinks and purples and blues, and it really gave like a certain tone and feel. That's all gone here. Um, and, and, and it just doesn't feel like the same book in a lot of ways. And the other, the other part of that kind of going hand in hand is all of a sudden this has become Catwoman in, in prison book as opposed to this sort of crime noir story that, um, that Tinney Howard has been telling. And it, it all had sort of the same – tone and feel and spirit with the exception of those Harley Quinn issues, which were kind of zany and, and I didn't really care for, but all of a sudden it has pivoted to like this, this prison movie, uh, prison movie feel, right? Uh, like what are those real terrible? I've never seen any of them, but I think they're called Ch chain heat or something like that. Those B movies with, you know, uh, a bunch of gratuitous, uh, sex and violence or what have you with these women's prisons and what yeah that's sort of <laughs> what i imagine this is gonna feel like you know obviously without the the gratuitous sex but um i don't know it's just not very interesting seeing selena behind bars I, i'm just i'm just not enjoying this this feels so different than the tone uh that of the book that we seem to enjoy when it first started you know um now i think the criticism we had early on was the fact that it the, you know wasn't paced she was trying to shoehorn so so much in this idea of catwoman being involved in the gotham city underworld and introducing the fine families and all that sort of thing um and it didn't necessarily feel as smooth as it could have in terms of pacing but now that that's all kind of forgotten uh it's referenced here and there certainly with eco you know taking on the catwoman persona right now but yeah, it just this just feels so wildly different in tone, and I think it's not helped with the fact that Nico Leone's art looks so different as well. So for me, it's 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 okay, it's average uh, at best. I think even though maybe an execution at the very beginning with what Tinney was doing, it may not have been an above average comic in terms of the story and the and the plot and. Um, and the potential and the ambition, I felt like it was above average. This is just average all around for me. There's nothing that stands out, nothing that's memorable uh, about this at all. So, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really digging on this uh, on this issue. So I don't know. Maybe you felt differently, Rocky. What do you think? Well, first, I want to give a shout out to David Nakatama on the art, the cover A. Uh, it looks really, it looks really good. It looks really good. I, uh, I, I, I could have in my, I wanted to say positive this week. So I, I didn't want to, I wanted to say as positive as possible. So I, I've intentionally tried to avoid talking about the covers, but 90, 98% of the variant covers for DC this week continue to have absolutely no relationship to the content and are generally, in my view, most of them are subpar to terrible. And uh, I just, I, they continue to fail. And I give them a failing grade because just having, again, standard poses uh, is nothing. You know, covers like this or like this or like this, they got, and like this, they got nothing to do with the interior. You, you got, you got to step up to the plate. As beautiful as some of them might be, 
you know, you got to you got to get more you got to get more relevant DC. But I digress. Uh, the story here, our, our problem with uh, Teeny Howard, uh, you know, Teeny Howard, on the one hand, sort of intrigues me with the storyline a little bit. The idea that Selena is going to let herself go to prison, knowing that she's she's not guilty of actual murder, that we, we know that from the detective telling her so. There's not enough evidence. I mean, there's no reason for Selena. Uh, it, Selena's sudden fit of depression to want to go to prison didn't make any sense. I thought maybe last issue she had an alternative, uh, an agenda to go to prison and maybe try to find some thieves or put together a gang. But apparently that's that's not the case as confirmed in this issue. Uh the, you know, she she befriends. Uh, she has a lot of inmates that she befriends and trains in this issue. But it's 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 quite clear that they don't want to be seen. They they have their own agency. They make it clear to Selena that while they respect her as sort of like their de facto leader in prison, they 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 have no you know they don't consider themselves her her pawns or her gang or whatever. And so. Um, and also the 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 prison guards sort of catch on to the fact that there's some animals getting in and out of the prison because that's how Selena was smuggling in some some foods and some candy through through her cat and the prison guard takes her cat and she gets all upset and it, it it's kind of it's kind of a little bit wonky and it, it doesn't really work all that well um meanwhile meanwhile uh eco and tomcat eco who's in, who basically is the cat woman while Celine is in prison in prison she's trying to uh you know keep gotham safe or what have you and and it ends up that she uh they end up running into the queen of hearts and the 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 crazy eights and the queen of hearts eco and tomcat incapacitate them knock them out they end up in prison and selena finds out while she's in prison that apparently punchline is talking about implementing phase two and so selena is quite upset with punchline because it was punchline's machinations that ended up that led to selena being in prison even though selena didn't have to be in prison and again, I, I don't really, I wish Teeny Howard would maybe explain in an interview or something on what basis Selena suddenly became as stupid as Wonder Woman. Um, but uh, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Selena and Wonder Woman should get together. They could, they could screw up all, all kinds of things. But in any event, we'll talk about Wonder Woman later. But uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's funny enough that uh, Selena here at the end Find the crazy eights and the queen of hearts end up being sent to the same prison where Selena and her gang are. And so Selena is going to find out undoubtedly this is leading uh, to Selena in, probably interrogating the crazy eights and queen and the queen of hearts to find out what punchline is up to. Selena then will escape because she can escape the prison at any time that's been established. Why she doesn't escape has not been established. Um, she doesn't appear to be depressed anymore, but in any event, um, I, I don't understand all the motivations as Teeny Howard has set things up, but it th there is a story here. I just think maybe if it was paced a little bit better, it could have uh, it would have more. It would just uh, it would land a little bit better, but it's still a little bit uh, uh, off to me. But uh, it's kind of meh. Not not my favorite of the week, but not not the worst. Yeah, again, I just think it um, it's sort of – it just feels so different than the way the series started. And that, that that's kind of – there's no consistency, and that's where it's kind of fall, you know, falling down for me. Maybe it will swing back around once they you know, break out of prison. Who knows? I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Uh, all right. 
Up next, we have Swamp Thing Green Hell, issue number three from writer Jeff Lemire. Doug Monkey with Sean Mall are the artists. David Barron does the colors. Steve Wands on letters. Um, you know, I, I this Black Label book, we had the first issue and then it was like a year before we had issues two and three, which I – it's a real disappointment because overall this is a really, really good series. It's Black Label. Um, it's out of continuity, but it doesn't need to be. Because uh, it's set far in the future, uh, almost a post-apocalyptic world, climate change and pollution and all that has sort of driven uh, man to, to really – humanity, I guess I should say, to really kind of struggle for survival to the point where the um, the parliament of the green, the parliament of trees decides they're just going to start over um, and uh, eventually – uh, they're at odds with Swamp Thing who wants to save humanity and Constantine sort of puts together a team. So it's been interesting. It's been fun. Uh, Lemire clearly understands these characters really, really well. And like I said from the very beginning in the first issue, what I loved about this so much um, is just the humanity of Alec Holland, how he feels like such a different Swamp Thing than Levi Kamea. Um, and, and again, it's that – it's so ironic, right? Because there's no human left in him. It's, it's just his consciousness in a veget, you know, a vegetal, vegetable body, basically. Um, you know, a, a plant body. There's no, there's nothing human about it. But one could argue that Alec Holland has, in his way, is much more human than someone like Constantine right who is just so despicable and does horrible things and manipulates people and again it's a constantine uh you know if you look up that phrase the ends justify the means that's constantine always has been always will be <laughs> yeah. um but you know he does these despicable things and you know you kind of love to hate him but he's doing it for the right reasons and uh, again again when you have that when you have boston brand when you have maxine baker um all these people that are doing the right things for different reasons and they have these sort of different levels of humanity. It's that contrast between the characters and you know why they make the decisions they make that really make this story um, work and, and make it interesting. And you add the Doug Monke art, which again, I'm going to sound like a broken record. This Monke art, and maybe it's purposeful, is a little looser, a little more visceral, a little more kind of sketchy, uh, more textured than things that we've seen him do in the past, like you know Green Lantern, for example, with uh, with Jeff Johns. Um, but being that that it's a post-apocalyptic world, being that it's Constantine and Swamp Thing, and we're going to hell, we're going to uh, you know the wilds of Africa to, to find Maxine Baker. It, it works, right? We've got all these monsters that have. Uh, crawled out of from the the, the um, all the vegetation under the sea, um, you expect them to look horrific and you know to have texture and and not looks you know super clean with really tight lines and that sort of thing. So uh, from that perspective, it works really really well. And there's even uh, a possibility for a sequel with what we see at the end with the the little girl that um, sort of got Alec to help out. All along, she she demonstrates that she perhaps is the new avatar of the the green, uh, with some powers that she shows to have some flowers uh, grow up on the grave of uh, one of the one of her caretakers, I guess, not her father, but probably her, like an uncle or a grandfather type uh, who passes away during the battle. So, 
all in all, I thought this was really great. The colors by David Barron are really strong. Um, so again, I, I do wish that it had come out without that long break and um, hadn't lost that momentum because I, I haven't heard anybody talking about this. So we, I heard a little bit of buzz when the first issue came out, but then when it came back, I, I haven't heard anyone talking about it. So what are your thoughts, Rocky? Well, this was – I thought the ending was very convenient and very uh, – Actually, kind of predictable, but I still enjoyed it because I kind of wanted a happy ending. I kind of wanted that. And uh, because this has been pretty dark from the beginning, I love that Doug Mankey's art. I always have. I always will. And I I particularly was impressed with how he portrayed um, Maxine Baker here, animal, animal woman. Uh, you know, it's funny. For those who uh, may, may need to... Uh, those who read Jeremy Adams' Flash, uh, w there's a little cute redheaded little girl called Maxine who's uh, best friends with uh, <laughs> Irie West. And uh, boy, she has like a big a bundle of red hair. And this animal woman uh, looks very, very different than her young, youthful counterpart. This is obviously a different universe and a, and a Black Label series, but I couldn't help but notice the, the, the disparity between the two portrayals here. This is an animal woman who is obviously, she is contr in control of the red, Swamp Thing's in control of the green. And I, I love the interaction here, how they, they basically, uh, with the help of John Constantine, who literally sells his soul to the devil with the caveat that this time he doesn't fool the devil. There's a great scene between John Constantine and literally the devil himself, where the devil doesn't even want to do a deal with Constantine because he knows somehow Constantine's going to screw him over. But Constantine doesn't appear to do so. Constantine says, no, I'm being serious here. You, you empower up the Swamp Thing. You give the Swamp Thing some power. You don't even have to go up on the earth. Just give him some power and I'll give you my soul. So Constantine does that. Power, and of course, that gives Swamp Thing and Animal Woman the edge. And not only do they manage to defeat the rot, but they manage to destroy the parliaments, the parliament trees and the parliament of the red. It's all just, it's all destroyed. And, and it's, it's, there's some mystery at the end. I, it was unclear to me. It would appear as if somehow Swamp Thing is, I think he's the parliament of trees all himself now. He controls all of that. And uh, presumably Animal Woman controls the red completely. So the parliaments are gone. And by doing so they're they're giving more agency to humanity, uh, which I, I just want to make the comment that I don't know how if this necessarily ends on a high note. Yes, it ends with humanity winning, but the Parliament of the Trees and the and the you know the having the red and the green, you know leaving those in control of Swamp Thing and Animal Woman might seem on the surface a good thing, but giving humanity back their agency to control their destiny that never seems to work out very well because we humans always tend to screw up our own lives and our gener whether it's this one or the next generation so i think it's inevitable that we're going to keep getting these types of swamp thing stories because humanity just keeps screwing up but i enjoyed this story and uh it's uh, it's definitely worth checking out and it's uh, i think i might i think i'm going to be probably picking this up in hardcover form because i love doug mankey's art and i'll be i'll be able to enjoy it better in one full sitting yeah fair enough uh all right i'm gonna let you go first on this one uh we have a new arc starting for wonder woman it's issue number 797 it's the reckoning part one it comes right on the heels of the lazarus planet uh what is it revenge of the gods um it's written by Be becky clunan and michael w conrad art is by amon k nahalapen tamra bonvillon uh handles the colors, Pat Brosel on letters. Um, so yeah, you know, we, we saw Hera betray Wonder Woman um, 
just recently in, in Lazarus Planet Revenge of the Gods issue number one. So this is uh, this is coming right on the heels of that. So what did you think? Is Wonder Woman improving, getting worse, staying the same? What are your thoughts? Well, I, you know, there was a little bit of lipstick that was applied to the pig of the opening issue of uh, Revenge of the Gods Part 1. Um, it's revealed here that uh, apparently... Apparently, Hera never actually made Wonder Woman a, go uh, a god. Uh, she she tricked Wonder Woman, uh, not that which obviously isn't hard to do because, as I said, Wonder Woman's not particularly bright, and uh, Wonder Woman very foolishly thought that having a convert, you know, just the gods all over the planet are going crazy. They're destroying humanity. They're 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 causing fear. They're causing humanity to fear them out of some twisted idea that somehow if we make humanity fear us, they'll remember us more. That'll convert into worship and we'll become more empowered because apparently we're all dying if humans don't worship us. So that's what's happening. And so Wonder Woman then decides to go have a conversation with Hera and she's really surprised to learn that Hera just can't be reasoned with. Shocking, I know. And so then Hera then bestows we thought Hera bestowed Wonder Woman with divinity but in fact she didn't she tricks Wonder Woman and she basically ties Wonder Woman up with her own magic lasso on the cliffs of uh, Prometheus or the Promethean cliffs cliffs and um as Wonder Woman is sitting there, Wonder Woman is saying such insightful things as goddess damn me I was a fool to think Hera could be trusted <laughs> shocking really Really, Diana? How that wisdom of Athena works, works so well for her. Um, we'll talk about a wasted gift. When is Athena going to realize that the last person she should give her wisdom to is Diana? Because she never uses it. But in any event, Hecate shows up. Now, Hecate is, of course, generally speaking, a bad god. But Hecate was previously talking with Hippolyta last issue, and Hippolyta, of course, was telling Hecate where to go, leave me alone. But Hippolyta is not doing anything particularly useful. Hippolyta sacrificed her life to become a god to help, presumably help to help protect the Amazons because they need a guardian on Olympus. Well, Hippolyta is not doing a particularly good job, but Hecate goes to Diana and is... and tells Diana, and I thought she was being truthful when she says to Diana, your mother sent me to free you. And I think that was probably the case, but even if it wasn't, it doesn't really matter. Wonder Woman, again, in all her wisdom, decides that, well, Hecate, I know you want to free me, but I, because you're a god, you're probably going to trick me somehow, so I'm not going to let you free me, so please leave me alone. I'd rather stay tied up on these Promethean cliffs. And that's exactly what happens. Hecate just leaves because Wonder Woman's not going to trust a god, <laughs> you know, in complete contradiction to what she did the previous issue. So just, you know, you would think that Wonder Woman, if, if your enemy wants to release you, if Hecate wants to release her, why not just let Hecate release you when she feels that there's going to be some obligation that she'll have to, oh, Hecate, Hecate, well, it's a god, so why don't you just portray a god if that happens? But in any event, Wonder Woman sits there. She, she pushes Hecate, Hecate away. And then, lo and behold, who shows up? The mysterious white man. I think he's white. In a black cloak. The same white man who, and who, is, who ended up on Paradise Island, Themyscira last issue, with Queen Nubia in the backup, who killed two men that wandered on the island. And he's there to help Wonder Woman. And he helps Wonder Woman escape. And... 
Wonder Woman's not particularly grateful either. She's not particularly grateful. He helps her escape. They end up getting attacked by these, by the agents, by these monsters of Titan. And uh, he tells Wonder Woman, run back to Themyscira. Go help your, Themis- your fellow Themyscirans. You know, and what does Wonder Woman say to him? I take no orders from a man. She actually says that. I take no orders from a man. I mean, Wonder Woman, I, I'm, it's, where's that language coming from? I mean, where's that bigotry coming from? That prejudice coming from? You take no orders from a man. This guy just saved your ass. He released you. Um, she also said something very interesting. She says that when, as this guy's releasing her, he's untying her. She says to him that if you were, if you lied to me, I, I believe you that you're a good person because if you lied to me, you wouldn't be able to untie the lasso, which is very interesting because I didn't think that that was a thing. Apparently now, if you're tied up in the lasso and somebody goes to untie you, if the person who is trying to untie you apparently is practicing deception, they won't be able to untie you if you're wrapped in the magic lasso. That's news to me. That's interesting. That's kind of interesting. Kind of a cool concept. I don't know if I quite understand it, but it's kind of cool. So I'll give Clune Rattle a little check mark there. It's interesting. I also want to give out to, I want to give a shout out to Weird Science DC Comics, uh, the guys at the Get Fresh crew. Uh, Jim and Eric postulated that maybe this mysterious man is Wonder Woman's brother, Jason. We haven't seen Wonder Woman's brother, Jason, since, uh, well, we last saw him at the end of Steve Orlando's Wonder Woman run. And before that, he was at the end of James Robinson run where, where, where Jason, Wonder Woman's brother, had taken off to the dark gods. He had left to be a sort of a, a sort of like the a patron god of the dark gods. And we never heard from him really since. So could this mysterious guy who's released by Diana, could that actually be her brother? Bear in mind that Jason, Wonder Woman's brother, can also step foot on Themyscira and not technically violate the rules because he's Wonder Woman's brother, I believe. So it's worth thinking about. Wonder Woman also runs into the squirrel, Ratatosk. The squirrel, that wonderful squirrel at the beginning of the Clune Rad's run, which is kind of cute. I guess it was kind of, you know, they're, they're incorporating their own past story, uh, characters, which isn't bad. Wonder Woman eventually escapes the cliffs uh, through the help of this stranger. And she comes up through the Well of Souls uh, where she meets Queen Nubia. And uh, Queen Nubia then uh, tells her that they had some mysterious uh, men wash up, uh, come upon the island. And then this uh, stranger once again uh, tells Wonder Woman that, uh, you know, he needs her help. But Wonder Woman decides that she doesn't want this stranger's help. Even though this stranger is better than her, smarter than her, seems to know more than her, seems to know what's going on. Wonder Woman, again, in her infinite wisdom, decides that, no, no, I don't need you. You've done enough. Uh, I mean, you, you you seem to know exactly what's going on. You seem to help me. You seem to have saved me. But I'm going to go and do this all by myself. Again, showing her abject stupidity. Good night. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, now, having said all that, this story is kind of, it's, you know, this is, again, I'm, I'm having, I have to admit, as, as ridiculous as I think these some of these plot points are, I'm having fun with this, and at least we're having, at least it's not vile milk drinkers that we've been subjected to prior to this, and so I actually don't mind it. Um, I can, uh, this is related, the backup is not much, it just shows, uh, the backup is just Mary Marvel coming upon Themyscira and helping Themyscirans battle the, battle the undead and then flying off to help Billy. So not much happens there. So that just sort of takes up pages. But I don't know. I, um, 
I thought it was a little bit better than uh, part one, and uh, this is better than Wonder Woman's been in a long time. I, I still think Wonder Woman, it, it doesn't say much for her intelligence and her strategic thinking by any stretch, but it, at least it's a little bit more interesting in different ways. So what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I would say exactly that word you just used. It's interesting, right? It's finally become interesting. Now, I would argue that this isn't really a Wonder Woman book, Right. I mean, it's it's become almost a ensemble book. I mean, we have as much Nubia and uh, probably more of the stranger than we have of uh, of Diana herself. And like you said, Diana makes these these choices that are so nonsensical. And even the way she talks is so inconsistent that it you know, she doesn't have agency in her own book. So that that's a bit of an issue. But if you set that aside and just take her as, you know, just another one of the characters uh, of this overall story uh, or title that should really be called Themyscira more than anything else, then yeah, it's, it's interesting what's going on. Like what, like Hera has become the big bad um, and they're, they're pulling in inter interesting concepts with the, you know, well of souls and traveling between these different realms and, um, and even uh, bringing in uh, Mary Marvel at the end, uh, as you mentioned in the backup, you know, I vastly prefer that than the, the young Diana, which doesn't feel like it belongs at all as backup. So, yeah, it is interesting. Finally, it is interesting. Um, but, yeah, it doesn't really portray Wonder Woman in a very good light. <laughs> I'm, I'm more like out of everybody in this entire book, like the one the character I want to read the most is the stranger. He's you know, there's mystery there. There's agency there's um he's formidable uh he's capable like you know what i mean what does that say about yeah. here's this book that's supposed to be filled with strong female characters and the most interesting characters this mysterious male like that that shouldn't be i should want to read about diana or nubia or um yara floor more than i do this stranger but you know even the way he talks is just more consistent we've only seen him for two issues obviously uh um, revenge of the gods one you know issue one and now here but he already just seems more together than these uh amazonians that this creative team has been writing for the past couple of years that just seemed so wishy-washy and um weak for lack of a better word i don't want them to be you know i don't feel like i'm being chauvinistic here but you know, when you, they first brought the tribes together, there was all the bickering and, you know, infighting and what have you. And it's just one disaster befalling them upon another. And, you know, it probably doesn't speak very good that you finally have somebody coming to rescue them. And it's a, it's a man like his, his role and his agency and his strength of character and what he's doing. That should be Diana. That should be what Wonder Woman is doing. Exactly. She should have been in, in, in quote unquote man's world. And I hate that term as much as you. She should have been in the outside world and heard, you know, hey, what's going on in Themyscira? You know, wait, what? and and have her show up uh, and, and you know, rally the troops and what have you. That's what should be going on. But anyway, I'm, I'm script doctoring. I'm, I'm playing backseat yeah. editor and that's not a, that's not a good thing. So I like it. Keep on talking. On. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's move on. Uh, milestone 30th anniversary special. Um, actually, you know what, before I do that, let me, um, yeah, I, I, I just, I do want to give the, the credits for that, um, 
for the backup uh, for the backup as i mentioned uh that has mary marvel it's the same uh creative team that did the um uh, the recent four issue mary marvel shazam series so it's written by josie campbell and i don't know who the artist is and i'm waiting for it to load and it's taking a really long time yeah. um because it always does when we're in a hurry yeah caitlin yarsky um, is the artist yeah jo jordy yeah. Belair is the colorist yeah, and who did the letters on it? Does it say? Uh, the, Clayton Cowles did the letters. Yeah, and uh, we Got should it. say that uh, Josie Campbell did do the uh, the four issue uh, miniseries of uh, Mary right. Marvel, yeah. or, or power or champion of Shazam or whatever. Yeah, and, and doesn't it say at the end that there, you know there's more to come in uh, of that story in the next uh, issue? Of yes, it says uh, where where's Billy and what's happening in Fishtown? Find out as Shazam's adventure continues in Lazarus Planet: Revenge of the Gods, number two. Yeah, so that backup's going to continue um, that storyline, which again, like, so strange, right? Like, just put it all in Wonder Woman, or put it all in that miniseries. Like, it's bouncing around. It's, yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Milestone 30th anniversary special. As I said, several stories in here. The first one is Universal Beans, which is a crossover between the original Milestone Universe from 1993 and the current Milestone uh, Universe that started in 2021. It's written by Evan Narcisse, uh, and they're a couple artists, Atogun Ilhan and Chris Cross. Uh, we've got Dexter Vines, Juan Castro, Norm Rotman, Atogun Ilhan, and Chris Cross on inks. Uh, Chris Sotomayor and Noel Giddings on colors and world design on letters. It's a crossover. As I said, uh, the main cover is an homage to, I think it's Flash 123, Flash of Two Worlds, uh, which is the first time in DC continuity or DC history when Earth-1 crossed over with Earth-2, very famous cover. So um, there is a bean who's, uh, he's a bang baby uh, person, his power manifests, and it kind of brings all these two different um, milestone universes together, which is interesting, right? Like this is in continuity, in canon, showing us that, yes, there are two different distinct milestone universes. They both exist separately in the DC multiverse. Um, and there are differences as we've, as we've seen. And as these characters meet, you know, hardware meets hardware, static meets static and, and all that sort of thing. And then they all come together in a big group. Um, the, the differences become uh, commented upon and, and become noticed. So it's fun. I, I think anybody who read, and I, I read some milestone stuff back in the day, but not not extensively. I bought way more of it than I actually read it was one of those things that I was buying it, but just didn't have time to read it. And then I've never gone back. Um, but reading this new milestone stuff does make me wish I had did have time to go back and read it all. But for anybody who was super invested in the original milestone universe that started in 93, they're going to get a lot more out of this. That's not to say there's not something there for people who have never read milestone or who are fans of the new stuff, um, because it's an interesting story in, in, in its own right. And a little bit of social commentary on the differences between social causes, which was something that Milestone in 93 was aware of and, and touched on in their books. And clearly this new iteration of Milestone is doing as well. So uh, I, I thought the, the, the main story was, uh, was pretty interesting, um, even if it felt uh, a little superficial. There's, you know, there's nothing here that happens with, you know, greatly of consequence. Uh, and, and I wonder... Um, if it'll be remarked upon in any of the main series, um, I, I sort of tend to doubt it, but 
uh, it is a good way to celebrate Milestone's 30th anniversary. So what do you think of the main story? I I thought it was I thought it was interesting enough. I I'm not really familiar with the original 1993 iterations, and so I uh, I, I probably never, frankly, had an appreciation in terms of what maybe those differences are. Uh, but it, it's still fine. It was it was actually, and this isn't an insult. It was my least favorite story in this iteration because, uh, but but I'm I'm glad it's in here. I'm just I'm getting used to this uh, milestone universe, and one of the one of my I don't know. I got mixed feelings. I first of all, I love the cover. I, I'm I'm going to be picking up this this special, this 30th anniversary special, because I think the stories here are interesting enough that they cram a lot in here. And one of the things that I think that the the milestone, the whole milestone team, all the creators on the milestone, various titles from Static to Icon and Rocket, etc. I think they're I think they're being given short thrift here. They got to cram a lot in these into these huge anthologies as well as their individual books. There is some these are good quality stories here and you get a lot of bang for your buck in the stories. You and I have reviewed them and and there's a lot there. There's a lot to mine and quite frankly, I can see the appeal of this and so I'm quite I, I like the fact that you know, you might this might be an expensive book. I'm assuming it's 9.99. Uh I'm assuming it's 9.99, but uh in any event, I I I, I I'm going to be picking this up, and but no, as far as the first story goes, I I never got as much out of it as I, I don't really have much to say about it. I I'm I'm much more. I, I got my favorite story was the next one, Static Beyond, where uh, I I actually wish that there was more overlap between <laughs> between the Milestone universe and the DC universe, and I really like the next story, Static Beyond, that has Batman Beyond interacting with an older Static. I quite quite like that. Yeah, I don't. As far as I know, this is the first. Uh, first appearance of this Static Beyond character. Uh, it's written and drawn by Nicholas Draper Ivy. We know he's uh, doing the current uh, Static season two along with Vidaella. Hassan Atzwan Elhau does the letters. So yeah, it's it's clearly Nicholas Draper Ivy, both in terms of the story and in terms of um, of what we get for uh, uh, for the art, which is fantastic as well. So. Uh, I thought it really worked on uh, on every level. I was really impressed with uh, with what we got here. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And uh, you know, it's it's sort of nice to see like Static because we see we see Static as a young kid making mistakes, and of course in his own comic. But to see this older Static actually giving advice to a, I mean, it's it's kind of funny at one point in this in the in the dialogue between Batman Beyond between Terry McGinnis and uh, and. Uh, and older static static says he's 30 he's 36 35 or 36 years old and static calls him old so i mean yeah. oh my god makes me feel really old but uh the the age difference is uh you know he's probably it was only like maybe only 10 years difference between the two but it's it, it was you know it was a little bit uh the type of advice that you would expect uh, an older hero to give a younger one but uh i i quite enjoyed it and and the art's fantastic at the at which you which you alluded to yeah, I mean, Nicholas J. Ivy, he has uh, his own cert certain style. And if you like that style, you're going to love this because um, he's he's uh, almost turning himself loose more so than he does uh, than uh, in the regular static book, because this is the future. This is a Gotham, Gotham City that's a little more uh, a little more used, a little it's been put through the ringer a little bit more. Um, 
yeah. than uh, that we you know might be might be used to seeing. So uh, there is an icon for ever series. Um, and a little blurb says in the 2010 series milestone forever, the future of 93's milestone universe was established. Now for the first time, we be go, we go beyond that story to show Raquel Irvin taking up the mantle. She was destined for icon. So rocket has, uh, or icon, the original icon has retired and Raquel has taken on that, that mantle. Um, she's no longer rocket. She is icon. And, uh, it's written by Stephanie Williams. Yasmin Flores Montanez is the artist. And, uh, again, it's just, it's a, it's a great story. Um, it really sort of like, like the first story does where you get that feeling of legacy and generation between the two different universes. This is given a sense of, uh, legacy and, and generation in the midst of, of just the original, uh, milestone universe itself. And the, the art by Montanez is really, really strong. So, uh, I, I thought this was a very emotional story and shows the, the power of, uh, of Raquel Irvin rocket, who then becomes icon in this story. Um, it, it shows the power and strength of her as a character. Yeah. What do you think? It's interesting. I'm not, uh, and and maybe I maybe I missed it. I'm I'm not sure. I wouldn't think that Rock would have the ability to assume Icon's powers because they're. I mean, he's a, he's an alien. But uh, uh, I thought that was interesting. But I also thought it was. I like the idea of legacy. I they they. It's it's weird. I'm just starting. I feel I know that I know that Milestone's been around since '93, but I feel like I'm just getting to know Icon and Rocket now. All of a sudden, we're jumping ahead in a whole generation, and we're getting these this older. Uh, I feel like this is too soon. Uh, I don't mind the story, but I don't know if I really needed a story about I you know Rocket taking over Icon's role. I kind of like Icon and Rocket. I I I actually don't you know. I feel I'm just getting to know Icon and Rocket for the first time, so I'm not really interested in legacy stories. But it's not bad as legacy story goes. Like I say, it is good, and it does promise to be, and I quote, to be very much continued. So this idea of this sort of legacy storytelling of, you know, Ike, uh, Rocket, uh, this Raquel becoming Icon, is something that we're going to get more of m moving forward. And I'm not, you know, I got I got mixed feelings about that. But, uh, you know, if the storytelling is good, I guess, you know, who am I to complain? Yeah, and we get a, a Blood Syndicate epilogue, which follows on the heels of Jeffrey Thorne's Blood Syndicate series. Thorne writes it. Sean Damien Hill does pencils. Anthony Fowler Jr. and Juan Castro on inks. Will Quintana on colors and world design on letters. Uh, you know, it's Thorne continuing his story of Blood Syndicate. So if it's right in in terms of tone and plot and introduces the Shadow Cabinet, which is um, some characters that we saw actually in the main story of this, but uh, also characters that existed in the uh, original Milestone universe back in the day. So uh, I thought this was really solid and it, it kind of widens the – uh, the current iteration of the milestone universe a little makes it feel a little bit more universal rather than everything just happening in the you know city of Dakota or on Paris Island. So from that perspective, I thought it worked really really well. You're, uh, you're, what were your thoughts? Did, did you say did you did you say Jeffrey Thorne? You mean yeah. you mean Lamar Gills, right? The the preview, the the next story. No no blood syndicate epilogue. 
Oh, okay. Jefferson. Oh, oh, I missed that. Oh, yeah, I skipped that one. Sorry, my apologies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that, 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 yeah. I, I like that one. That, that was good. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I gotta give. I really like the villains in, in the in the milestone universe the villains just look compelling as hell there's something more intimidating about them there's an originality in their character design and in their and in their costumes i i just i just like it visually this was stunning i i, I have to give a shout out to the uh pencils sean damien hill um I, I hate to be a selfish bastard, but I wish I wish he would draw some more mainstream DC titles because I really <laughs> I want DC to put him on other titles because I love his art that much. But obviously he loves these characters and I'm, I'm sure that's part of it, too, because he, you know, I'm for whatever reason, he, uh, he he's definitely good enough. I think he could probably he could probably he could probably get some artists removed from certain titles, <coughs> Riley Roswell, if he really wanted to. But, uh, but no, I, I, I enjoy, you know, like I said, I am, I feel I don't know these, these characters as, as well as I'd like, but I have to admit that I'm, I'm slowly getting to know them more. And, uh, you know, we shall see. It's like I said, I, I'm enjoying this milestone title. This, this, yeah. And then the last one that you kind of alluded to uh, already, it's, it's sort of a, a preview of of more of what's to come uh, in uh, static. Uh, there's a static up all night graphic novel coming, and it's from uh, author Lamar uh, Giles. He's a longtime Milestone fan. Um, I don't remember seeing who did the art in this, but I imagine it's the same artist who's going to do the art in that. Um, uh, Parasaline. Parasaline. Yeah, there we go. Parasaline. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, what's, what's interesting is we've only really gotten, um, either Chris Cross or Nicholas Draper Ivy doing, doing static. Um, and so getting a different artist on it, that's kind of grounding it more, I think is working, uh, is working for me anyway. So, uh, I thought that was pretty interesting as well, but, um, yeah, it, it it felt in line as much as this hasn't been Vida Ayala who, who they've they've done all the static stories so far. Um, I thought this really worked. So um, it yeah. probably I wouldn't say it was my favorite, but uh, it definitely it definitely worked on a, a lot of different levels for me. <laughs> I I actually gotta I gotta say this was actually my this was actually my favorite. I I, I was surprised. I can't believe because this is this is kind of like a young adult fiction. Uh, compilation, but damn, if I I love the art. The art's fantastic. I think it's the best art I've seen in, in some of the young adult compilations from DC coming out. And I quite and I actually want to pick this up. I actually kind of enjoyed it. I I love the dialogue. I love the character moments. I, I love the interaction. There's kind of some romance going on and some. Uh, I love the humor. I thought the facial expressions with the the art was was really good. I thought this was uh, again. This is another artist that I'd like to see in the in, in trying some other titles. Like this art's really good. I can see this being in in some some mainstream DC titles. This is more than just uh, uh, the, the the detail here is is definitely. I think, you know, it's got it's got my attention, and uh, I was impressed. And I'm going to uh, I'm definitely going to be checking this checking this out. I'm not sure what the price point is on 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 these. It's probably you know probably ten dollars. But uh, static up all night. I have a feeling this is going to if it's a self contained story, which most of those most of these young adult sort of fictions are. Uh, 
yeah, it's, uh, you know, hey, again, more more reasons to be impressed with Milestone. It's just unfortunately, it's just it's just not getting the attention I think that 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 it deserves. I, I think in in many corners, but we shall yeah, see. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Uh, all right, we're up to the final Batman one bad day one shot. It's Raz Al Ghul. Tom Taylor does the script. Yvonne Harris does the pencils. Danny Mickey is a time collaborator on inks. Brad Anderson on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. Um, you know, I think this was one a lot of people were looking forward to. Th- this one, and I'm sure that's why DC did it, right? Like they bookended probably the two most well-known um, creative teams uh, with King and Garrods on Riddler and, uh, and then finishing that up with Raz Al Ghul from, from Tom Taylor. Um, that being said, Riddler is still my, my favorite uh this is good, but it doesn't feel like there's anything new here. That, that was what was so great about the Riddler one, right? Like it felt like a realistic take on the Riddler, uh, but it felt new and fresh. This just feels like, a, don't get me wrong, a very good technical comic, beautiful art, well-paced, good scripting, but it's just, it's just a Ra's al Ghul story. There's nothing new here. You know, it, it's a very succinct, very good, very high quality summation of who Ra's al Ghul is as a character. Like you could give this to somebody who had no idea who Ra's al Ghul was and they would read this and they would know exactly who Ra's al Ghul is. And that was sort of the editorial prompt, right? Um, so Taylor <laughs> nails it from that perspective. But that's what makes what uh, King and Garrett's did so great because you could say the same thing about what they did with Riddler, but they brought in a new dynamic to it, which was so fantastic. Uh, but this is just really, really good, really, really enjoyable. Yvonne Ortiz is at the top of his game with the art. Um, yeah, this was just a heck of a lot of fun. And I, I really, really enjoyed it. You know, for all of me saying, you know, it's not as good as Riddler. Well, that's one of the best comics I've read in the last decade. Um, this is probably the best comic I read this week. It, it is really, really strong. Um, the visual storytelling is awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, it's probably my favorite Raz al Ghul story I've ever read just because, like I said, it sums up who Raz is so, so well and why Batman opposes them, why they're, you know, although they might have the same uh, ends, their means are wildly different and why those different methods put them at odds with each other. Uh, so yeah, I thought it was uh, a fantastic job from the whole, uh, the whole entire creative team. Yeah. Brad Anderson's colors are fantastic. So yeah, really, really strong, um, high quality book. Uh, I imagine it'll sell really well too, cause it's Batman and it's Ra's al Ghul. So yeah. What'd you think? Well, let me tell you something. What I love about this story is that it is, so it, it, it does something which you don't see very often. Ra's al Ghul won. <laughs> He wins. Russell Gall wins. He kicks ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he literally, he defeats Batman handily. He gets the one up on Batman. He wants to make the world a safer place. Rosagall succeeds in doing so. Rosagall has a hit list of 30 people that are ruining the environment, that are screwing up social media, that are screwing up the world, screwing up all kinds of things. He's got a hit list of 30 people and he's got to take Batman off the playing field to kill these 30 people. And that's exactly what he does. He kills the 30 people. He resurrects Batman in the Lazarus pit. Story over. Batman, you lose. 
That's the story. And now I really, really oversimplified it, but that's it in a nutshell. But, uh, you know, and maybe Batman's really pissed off. I got to say, I'm not sure who had the worst day here. I'm assuming Batman had a bad day. Batman loses. Now, I, I'm not going to pretend to know how one bad day uh, is what, you know, how does the phrase one bad day apply to this story? It's been it's a little bit of a stretch to apply one bad day to all the stories. But, you know, there's a, there is a general, you know, I suppose you, you loosely there's a there's a theme there. Who had the bad day here? Well, I'm sure Batman's not too impressed with what Rasogal's done, but it's it, it's really unimportant. You said it here. This is Razogol. Uh, Razogol. Uh, uh, there's a pivotal point in this story. Razogol wakes up. He's he's 700 years old. Every time he wakes up, he has to. He 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 remembers. He re, he wakes up and he smells the world and he remembers the way the world is and then how the world used to be and then he 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 smells the world as it is now and he takes it in and he realizes it's dying and it's terrible and and there's a loss of a wolf. There's there's a species that dies out. A species of wolf in this story that that this this final creature. This creature. The last of his kind dies in Razogal's arms, and uh, Razogal puts him to sleep. This creature, this wolf, dies of cancer, and and that's sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back. And Razogal vows he's going to do something, and and that basically inspires him to to be extremely aggressive. And at one point, Razogal says to one of these billionaire criminals, he says to them, "When did you decide that you were more important than tomorrow?" And and he and what he does to this billionaire's son. This is what it feels like to lose the future. I mean, this is Raza Gall at his most uh, egregious and in many ways horrific, but yet, uh, but yet empowering in terms of what he does for the world. Um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna be an outlier here, maybe, but maybe some will agree with me. I got no problem killing thirty people on the planet if it makes the world a better place. You know, go Roz, go Roz, go, you know. Um, and uh, there, there's a scene here where Batman is so, I mean, Razagal considers Batman an obstacle. And he, and he says that to Damien. He says, Damien, you, your dad's the obstacle. He's not the cure. Your dad, you know, Batman doesn't make the world a better place. Batman's the obstacle to making the world a better place. We can make, I can make the world a better place. I just got to kill off a couple of people. Okay, maybe more than a couple. He ends up killing up thousands, not just 30, but thousands. Omelets and eggs. That's Razo Gall. This, like you said, is Razo Gall. And there's a pivotal scene here where, 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 where Damien, you know, where what happens to Batman is, is quite is quite lethal and Damien, you know, knows his dad is dying and he, and he says to him, you know, Batman makes Damien promise him, Damien, don't use vengeance. Don't, don't kill. Don't let this get to you. Don't, don't let Roz win. And, and Damien, Damien, true to form, shows that he's more Batman than Roz Agal. He's more his father than his grandfather. And so there's some very powerful moments here that it isn't just a good Roz story. It's a powerful emotional story for the relationship between Damien and the power uh, and his influence of love of, of his father, Bruce. And there's some, it, like I said, it works. And so Tom Taylor is good at giving us those character moments here and I will say that the story is a little bit, you know, it's, I think I think it's kind of simplistic in a way, but I kind of like it too. the 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 idea that Roz actually wins, and and at the end, you know, Batman gets all upset and confronts Roz, but Roz doesn't care. Roz will just he lets himself die because he's going to get resurrected again, which is exactly what he does. And so this is a story that where Roz really beginning, middle, and end. 
Raw's a goal kicks ass and he wins and he doesn't have a bad day at all. <laughs> and he wakes up at the end resurrected with a smile on his face because the world's better than when he left it, than when he left it prior. So that's what makes this story. So uh, for me, it kind of puts a smile on my face because I got to admit, sometimes the smugness of Batman and Superman kind of pisses me off. You know, I mean, sometimes, you know, it's okay. Why don't you kill people once in a while? It's not the, you know, it's not a big deal. It happens. But hey. Yeah. If you want to make, you got to, you want to make an omelet, you got to break some eggs. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Uh, All right. Up next, we have Nightwing number 102. For some reason, there's no credits for the main story, but we know it's written by Tom Taylor. Travis Moore does the art. Adriana Lucas on colors. I'm sorry. I don't know who does the letters. And then there is a a backup uh, part two of the story with uh, Nightwing and John Kent investigating this um, death of these trapeze artists uh, at this circus. And uh, C.S. Pocket is the writer. uh, Pocket, perhaps, is how you pronounce it. I'm not exactly sure. Is the writer of that. Uh, Eduardo Panseca is the penciler. Uh, Julio Ferrer does inks. Adriana Lucas on colors. And Wes Abbott on letters. The main story, I think Rocky probably feels similar to me for this one. Um, Yeah, it's a bit of an issue in that it feels like it's moving along really slow um and it's it's frankly it's not that interesting um which you know i find myself a little surprised about that because for the most part the series has been has been really good um but yeah, this one, eh, I don't, I don't know. It's, it feels like the story's meandering a little bit for me. So anyway, uh, that's all I have to say about, about it. Like that, I really don't have anything more to add than that. It's just, I'm not sure it, the, the, this just feels like a forgettable arc. I'd rather be exploring Heartless. I'd rather be exploring Nightwing and Barbara's relationship. You know, this, the story with the Titans and what have you, it just, it's just not working for me, man. I, I don't know. So I don't know. Maybe maybe you feel differently. What are your thoughts? Well, no, I agree. This is, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's been the rumblings in many quarters have about Tom Taylor and the the Tom Taylor's inclinations when they're the the negative aspect of his inclinations is that he can often drag out a drag out a plot and have a very plodding plot. And you get character moments, but, you know, again, we, we, we've said this again and again and again. The character moments can often save some of his, the plotting nature of his plots, the snail pacing. But in this issue, it, it unfortunately, there's, there's not enough character moments to salvage what is really a snail pacing plot. You know, this involves, I mean, the entire Titans. I mean, we have the Titans that are supposed to be replacing the Justice League. It takes the entire Titans. I mean, they're very competent in this issue, but they take out the sort of the grinning man, this grinning man who knocked out Nightwing. Nightwing was investigating this, the the murder of the King of Vatavia, Vatavia, King of Vatava last issue. And it ends up that, uh, you know, Nightwing was knocked out by this grinning man who's a shapeshifter and this who's and this grinning man has an origin that he used to be a, a man who had a, the ability, a, sort of a cheap villain who, who could make disguises. And he ends up uh, being granted 
by making selling his soul to Neuron, uh, he 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 becomes the grinning man because uh, he you know he tells Neuron, I want to be the master of disguise and I want to be able to smile all the time. And so of course the curse was that he he's a, he's the grinning man. And unfortunately, in this issue, the whole issue is just is just them trying to they're just all the Titans are battling the grinning man. And now, you know, and the grinning man who is disguised as Nightwing, you know, they're they're the Titans are trying to rescue Olivia, who is the daughter of Blockbuster, because for some reason, somebody wants the uh, uh, somebody uh, Neuron wants the daughter of Blockbuster because Blockbuster sold apparently sold his daughter's soul to Neuron. But now Blockbuster's dead. We don't. Presumably, Blockbuster maybe is in hell. We don't know where Blockbuster's soul is, but Neuron must have it. But Neuron wants to have Olivia's soul as well because of some deal that Blockbuster made, which doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, on what basis does does Blockbuster have the right to sell his own child's soul to Neuron? It's not clear, but we know that when we finally get to the end of this issue, all the Titans decide, uh, and in particular Raven, they're going to go and visit Neuron in hell to... I don't know, steal the contract or something? Steal the contract so they can prevent Olivia's save, save Olivia's soul from being ultimately subsumed by by you know, by Neuron? It just seems really kind of silly. It removes any sort of gravitas. I don't care about this. I mean, I, I thought this is... You're supposed to be elevating the Titans, elevating Nightwing. This seems like a significant step back. And, and again, don't get me wrong, there's beautiful art here. But this is a real, really boring story. And, you know, Olivia's a real cute kid, don't get me wrong. But again, it's a boring story. And it just, it, I'm very, very disappointed with it. And the backup with the Nightwing and Superman, the backup I find is was at least a little bit more interesting. Uh, but even, you know, where it shows, you know, Nightwing sort of teaching John Kent the ropes. And there's flashbacks to Batman teaching Nightwing on what to look like, on what to look for in an investigation. Uh, they're investigating a murder at a circus. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, interesting enough, but again, not particularly helpful or useful. And it's, again, it's kind of boring. I don't care about a murder at a, you know, I'm not sure what the purpose of it, this is. I'm just, I'm disappointed with this issue overall, because it's something where finally we're reaching a point where it's, if I didn't know better, I think Tom Taylor was running out of ideas here. And I, and I know he's writing a lot of stories, but this really feels like it's, uh, it could have been much, much better. And, uh, you know, can you imagine? It's almost good that we had a backup this issue, a backup story, because good Lord, how much more could you stretch out that initial story? It, it felt decompressed to begin with, and it was truncated in order to allow for the backup. So this was a significant miss. And also, what a terrible cover A with just Nightwing down the cover. This, this thing was lazy from beginning, middle and end. Sorry, but, you know, this was a, this was just a miss. And coming off of issue 100, uh, I really think that fans deserve better than this. Yeah, I mean, you kind of wonder, is this supposed to be like a, a prelude of, of the, what fans will get with the uh, Titans title that we know yeah. Taylor is doing uh, with Nicholas so. Scott on art? Like, yeah. I, I want to I pick that up with, you know, Taylor and Scott. That's, that's a match made in heaven. I, I, I loved their Earth 2 series back in the day, but... Man, if it's this, I don't. I don't really want to read this. It's just like you said. It's not. It's boring. 
Um, the backup I enjoyed a lot more than you did. Uh, you know, I talked about it last time with the first issue. I love the interaction between this, this sort of next generation. You know, we, we kicked off the episode talking about, uh, Batman, Superman world's finest. Um, this is that next generation, right? Like Dick Grayson, the first Robin, John Kent, you know, the next Superman, um, you know, teaming up and obviously Dick's been around a lot more than, uh, John. And so he's kind of teaching him the ropes, but it is the second generation. It is the super sons, if you will, uh, in a lot of ways, you know, Dick Grayson's more, uh, Bruce Wayne's son than Damien is, um, certainly came long before Damien. So in, in that aspect, it, it, it works. And, and the Fernando, uh, or sorry, the, uh, Eduardo Panseca pencils are, are fantastic on that. So, All right, last book we're going to talk about in detail is DC Legion of Bloom, number one. This is their spring special. Uh, Bear with me here. There's um, eight stories. I'm going to go through the creatives real fast. There's a Poison Ivy story, Growing Pains, written by Ashley Allen, arts by Isaac Goodhart, colors by Chris Peter, letters by Hassan Otsman Elhow. There's a Batman story, The Peculiar Pieces of Pierre O'Neill, written by Zach Thompson, art by Hayden Sherman, colors by Patricio Del Pesh, letters by Becca Carey. Blue Beetle in Florida Man, written by Julio Anta, art by Jacoby Salcedo, colors by Alan Pasalacqua, letters by Dave Sharp. Titans West in The Birds and the Bees, written by Kevin Scott, pencils by Atagon Ilhan, inks by Mark Morales, colors by Hi-Fi, letters by Carlos M. Manguel. Swamp Thing and The Flash in Monsters, written by Kenny Porter, pencils by Brian Level, inks by Jay Leistein, colors by Jordan Boyd. Captain Carrot in Baby's Day Out, written by Calvin Casaluca. Art and Colors by Vitor Cafagia. Letters by Dave Sharp. Wonder Woman and Siggy in Frosty Reunion, written and drawn by Travis Moore. Colors by Aaron Enrica Angiolini. Letters by Dave Sharp. And then finally, a Superman story, We Just Have to Make It to Spring, written by Dave Wilgaz. Art by Riley Rosmo. Colors by Yvonne Placencia. Letters by Tom Napolitano. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go... Really fast, I don't have much to add about any of these particular stories. The Poison Ivy story, I mean, kudos to Ashley Allen. It felt like a Poison Ivy story. The Eyes of Goodheart art was very good. Beyond that, it's a Poison Ivy story. I, you know, nothing memorable about it for me. What about you? Uh, no, well, uh, again, it's uh, it's once again approaching up. It's a Poison Ivy story with, you know, treating a psychopath like she's a good person. And uh, I just I like Poison Ivy as a villain. And uh, but, you know, look, it, it would, uh, you know, Pamela Isley is a, is, a, is, a, is a good person, has has no problem. You know, she obviously has no problem, problem murdering people, but she's also sweet and innocent. And and, uh, you know, again, it, it's it's another writer trying to play both sides of the fence and and showing the moral complexity of uh, Pamela Isley when, in fact, she's just a psychopath. And uh but, you know, uh, again, that's that's Pamela Isley for you. I, I, I love the art. Uh, and uh, Ashley Allen, I don't know if we're going to see more of her as a writer. Uh, I don't I would need to see more of her writing to, to pass more judgment on it. But Isaac Goodhart, I didn't mind the art. I'm looking. It's it's a decent enough artist. I look forward to maybe seeing some more of Isaac Goodhart's art uh, elsewhere in the DC universe. Yeah, he's done some other stuff. Uh, he started at Top Cow. Uh, he's done some other things here or there for DC certainly hasn't had a regular title, but, uh, the Batman story by Zach Thompson, uh, villain is, uh, Jason Woodrow, the Floranic man. Um, it's pretty out there as I come to expect from Zach Thompson. I thought the art there by Hayden Sherman was really interesting. Usually his art is, is really loose in style. This wasn't, 
Um, and so I found that to be really interesting. Um, so yeah, take that for, uh, for what you will. Um, yeah, but well, it, it seemed, uh, I thought that, I thought the title was the most interesting aspect of it. You know, the peculiar pieces of Pierre O'Neill. Well, the Floronic man was just sort of, he just sort of broke up this guy in various pieces and he, and he, again, it's, it's sort of like the typical sort of plot that we see again and again, the same trotted plotted plot of whether it's poison ivy or Floronic man, it's the same idea of sort of like, you know, going against, you know, people who are, you know, uh, uh, you know, who are against the environment and just, just, it just seemed to be, uh, you know, it's, it's Batman just really sort of torturing the Floronic man in order to get information from him. And then ultimately at the end, the Floronic man escapes, uh, but he pricks, he manages to prick Batman's chin and it hints that maybe the Floronic man steals some blood from Batman and will use the blood of Batman for some future nefarious plot. So, uh, you know, we might have a future storyline out of that. So we'll still see. Uh, Blue Beetle is probably my least favorite. This is the Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle. Um, and it plays on that whole idea of Florida man, you know, news stories all the time. Florida man does this crazy thing. Florida man does that crazy thing. Wasn't memorable. I thought the art was only okay. Yeah, I don't really have much more to add than that. It was probably my least least favorite story. Yeah, I I I agree with you. I don't. I've I don't forgive my ignorance. I don't know any. I've never heard of Florida Man. I I don't. What what is Florida Man? So usually in the U.S., when you hear some crazy story like you know such and such has sex with a snake or such and such you know caught speeding down the highway naked or whatever it's always it's florida man blah blah, blah. like these crazy things always happen in florida like the people oh, down there okay. are, are nuts so it's so that's okay. what they, kind of a funny funny thing um just you know florida man being hey some guy in florida that did this crazy thing that you wouldn't think anybody would ever actually do in real life it happens and it happens in florida <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I, I don't have much to say about it. I thought it was sort of meh, you know, I, I'm not, I don't pick up these types, these anthologies, my, you know, I'm not, you know, I, it just wasn't my cup of tea reading the whole thing. So I'll just, we'll, we'll let that go. Yeah. The, yeah. The Titans West story. Uh, it's a bunch of the, again, Titans. Well, I don't even, was there a Titans West? I guess there must've been at one point, um, but it's a bunch of the female, Titans going to rescue Hawk. So we have Dove, we have Bumblebee. Uh, I can't remember who else is in it. Um, but they go to rescue Hawk, who's become a member of this cult where they're taking like this drugged honey, a little bit yeah. like the recent issue of po Poison Ivy that yeah. we read. Another orgy. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Flame, Flame Bird is another one that's there. Um, and, and basically what happens is Dove basically pisses Hank off enough to the point where he kind of lashes out because, you know, it's, it's this orgy and love and kumbaya, whatever. So he's kind of repressing <laughs> that part of himself that makes him hawk. So when she finally makes him mad yeah. enough, um, then he, he, he hawks out and then he kind of comes back to himself. So again, nothing special. The art was only okay. It didn't really like Kevin uh, Scott's done such a fantastic job in the uh, Titans United series that I would have expected a little mm. more from this, but it, it felt just a little predictable, I guess you'd say. Yeah, well, it, it it's kind of funny because it. I think if I I'm guessing that it takes place maybe in the same universe as is Titans is 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 yeah. Titans United, and uh, I thought it could fit right in. 
I thought it was comical with with the whole sort of orgy background and and uh, the character interactions were kind of funny. I didn't mind some of the dialogue. I I thought it was probably one of the more entertaining you know stories in this compilation. You know because it's actually one where I actually paused more than just sort of skim read. It was because it's probably because there was an orgy. But you know that's that's my Pyrian fanboy coming. It's like oh there's an orgy. Oh well, it's <laughs> maybe I'll flip the pages back and reread that. But uh, no, it was. Uh, Hey, yeah, and the art's not that bad either. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I thought the art the art was solid, solid as well. Uh, so next up is the uh, the Flash Swamp Thing story by Kenny Porter, pencils by Brian Level. Again, it's it's a Flash Swamp Thing team up. There's nothing you know to write home about. It. It's just it's okay. It's a chance for Kenny Porter to write some uh, some superheroes. So from that level, it worked. Um, but again, there isn't anything that I'm going to be remembering or thinking about, you know, next week, you know, I'll, I'll have completely forgotten the story. Now, if there's anything wrong with it on, on its surface, it's just, for me, there wasn't anything there that, uh, that stood out. So, well, uh, it's got a nice message at the end. Swamp thing, this horrific looking talking plant talks to a child that's already traumatized from seeing monsters and tells the child that, no, 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 there are no monsters. Believe me. I mean, and if there are monsters, don't worry. Don't fear, little one. The real monster will be there to rescue you. Uh, <laughs> so I can't help but chuckle because I'm pretty sure this kid's already traumatized by being rescued by Swamp Thing uh, because he's not exactly a pleasant looking fellow. But, uh, you know, there you go. Never judge a hero by how he or she looks because you could be as ugly as Swamp Thing and still be a hero and uh, of course that's what this kid is and it's all good and the Flash is you know uh, the colors here are great there's one thing about Swamp Thing green and and Flash red it looks really good the colors pop off the page uh, Jordan Boyd on the colors did a really great job so it was because visually it was probably one of the most eye-catching uh, uh, comp compilation uh, stories in this uh, anthology yeah, good point. The, the colors were really good. So, yeah. <clears throat> uh, all right. Up next, there's a Captain Carrot story. Calvin Kosolke, Victor Kofaji. Uh, this one was a lot of fun. Captain Carrot trying to to take care of his, you know, many many offspring. As we all know, rabbits have many many offspring at one time, <laughs> and they all sort of take off when they wear Captain Carrot out. Um, and he yells at them as they're flying out the window, no flying before you're 16. And they take on this giant King Kong like monster. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of fun, uh, <laughs> kind of an animated, almost a Disney type style. Um, so that it was probably the, the most fun, the most lighthearted story, uh, in the issue. I thought it worked pretty well. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I'm very much used to, I've got the, I think it was, uh, what was it, uh, I'm trying to remember how many I do have the original all the issues of the original Captain Carrot Zucre. run as yeah. yeah the Captain Carrot and the Amazing Zucker. I also have the 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 four or five issue the Oz Wonderland War sort of like the crisis for the Captain Carrot and the Amazing Zoo crew. And so I, I look back fondly. That artistic style, I'm accustomed to that. But I kind of like this because this has a little bit more of a quasi-Disney, a quasi-different feel to it. And so I, I sort of like it because we're, we're sort of used to seeing Captain Carrot drawn in the, the, the ultra bulky, super heroic, muscular yeah. type like we saw in, in, in the leading up to Dark Crisis and in Justice Incarnate. So it's kind of nice to see him drawn more like a Bugs Bunny here <laughs> with all the bunny rabbits in there and what have you. So it was cute. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it really was. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, 
Next up, we have uh, a Wonder Woman and Siegfried story that, writ written and drawn by Travis Moore, which I like. He, Travis Moore is, uh, is actually a pretty solid writer. Um, and it, this is probably the best for me, my favorite artwork. And the colors here are, are interesting as well. They fight Jack Frost, basically. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's, again, the, the, mo the most polished looking art, I would say, in the whole issue is this... Uh, is this story. I thought it worked really, really well. Um, and I mean, not that Travis Moore doesn't give us good art and hasn't given us good art in the past, but it's almost like when, he, when he's drawing his own story that he's writing, like he's really pulling out all the stops to make sure it's as awesome as it can possibly be. Um, so yeah, I thought it, it, it was really good. Um, and the story, I mean, the story was, was fine. Um, he's showing that he does have some some writing chops as well. So, uh, what do you think of this one? Well, the story the story is hilarious. I mean, basically, it's revealed that Siggy used to use, Siggy uh, apparently is bisexual, and his he his boyfriend used to be Jack Frost, and Jack Frost is basically uh, you know is following Ziggy around and is, uh, you know, he's got like a dark, dark ice cloud following him around and Ziggy tries to shower and bath and he gets frozen and there's a dark cloud wherever Ziggy is walking around and there's the cloud will snow, the uh, 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 hovering cloud will snow on him sporadically and uh there there are scenes where of a sexy siggy in the in the tub and so those who are into the whole you know the wonder woman scene of course this is uh you know lgbtq inspired but it's actually kind of a funny story it's not just this is the type of story that i think is actually it's humorous and funny and jack frost is there and jack frost basically kind of misses siggy so it's but it's it's comical and it's 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 lighthearted and it actually has a point. I actually think Ziggy, uh, you know, I, I kind of wondered is Ziggy, is he or isn't he? Uh, but I, I thought it was, I thought it was a fun issue. Uh, and it, it sort of tells us something about Zig, Ziggy that, you know, uh, I guess we didn't know before. And, and, you know, he, we know that Z Ziggy has a very, uh, we know that he's got a rich past because he was Wonder Woman met him on Asgard at the beginning of, uh, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad's Wonder Woman run. And he's probably, I, I think he could be a more interesting character. I think he's more interesting here having, fun than he is battling vile milk drinkers, uh, which <laughs> the gift that keeps on giving. But, uh, in any event, it, I, I thought it was fun. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree. And again, the art was, was just fantastic. Yeah. Well, the final story, a Superman story, um, which is written by Dave, uh, Will goes, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, well, Gauze, maybe uh, he's an he's most known for editing over at DC, but he did do that Man Bat series uh, miniseries a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Riley Rosmo on art, so I will say that this art from Rosmo is my yeah. favorite Rosmo art I've ever seen. Yeah. It's the least stylized. It's the most. It's very good. Um, yeah, the, just it, it, this is a heartfelt story. It's all about uh, like it start. The story starts off with with Pa Kent kicking a a snowblower and calling it a piece of garbage, like very out of character for Paul Kent and he, you start to go away. Oh, this is a person who doesn't understand who Paul Kent is as a character. But as you read it with Clark there, who shovels the, the walk in, you know, a split second um, because he's Superman uh, and saying, uh, Paul Kent saying to him, Hey, you know, thanks for the help. Sorry. I lost my temper. It's not easy this time of year. And it's all about talking about that time after the holidays, kind of that, that 
for lack of a better term, depressing time after you get the holiday letdown and you got the very few hours of daylight, night lasts a long time, very short days and kind of waiting for spring, waiting for everything to, to waken up and the idea of rebirth and all that. Um, and it's that story, that uh, interaction that Pa Kent had with, uh, with Clark way back when that Clark takes with him each time that part of the year rolls around and you know he uses it in his interactions with Lex Luthor and uh, with Bizarro and with uh, even the everyday citizens of uh, of Metropolis and members of the Justice League and what have you and he you know he took it to heart it's a it's a lesson and a memory that he hasn't forgotten and it it it's a fantastic job by by uh, Wise Goals uh, to to really give us a heartfelt story and sort of remind us of how human Superman really is for all, you know, for being an alien, for, you know, for lack of a better term or, or Kryptonian. So yeah, that far and away my favorite story um, in the issue. And, and again, the Riley Rosmo art, be best art I've ever seen him do. Fantastic. So uh, I, I agree. There's uh the art is, uh, uh, you know, and again, because, you know, if any guy, you know, he deserves a call out for his efforts artistically in this story. If for no other reason that the guy's taken, you know, I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's very stylistic. And, you know, I, I know that I think a lot of people have been, I think, overly cruel on his, <laughs> to, in the way they describe some of his art. If, uh, he's just very stylistic. But I, I, I got to give a call out to how amazing two pages are and absolutely inspired art. There's one page where it, it starts off at the beginning. It's like you're reading a newspaper and there's multiple panels and the level of detail that Rosmo puts into each individual panel. I mean, there's literally like there's there's uh, 16 panel. There's 16 frames on the more than that, actually. And it, it bleeds off into the off the page for and it shows just how busy superman is and as superman gets busier and busier and busier you get to a page where superman is holding up the panels his back it's the panels the the symbolism and the metaphor of of him being overwhelmed like it's atlas he's holding he's literally holding the comic and the, and the panels from from overwhelming him and crushing him and he's and you could tell he's straining it's just a beautiful so beautifully done and there's one where the panels are sort of collapsing on him and they're they're smashing onto the ground behind him conveying the idea that superman is somewhat overwhelmed but he's still uh, despite all that, the overwhelming aspects of all that Superman has to do, he still finds time to not only be kind, but to be more kind than necessary. To, to, to not only be, to, to be compassionate, but to show a little bit more compassion than maybe is necessary. And he, and he doesn't let, as he tells Luther, he's not going to let Luther win. And, um, and it's it's just a very good story. It's 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 a very much a Superman story, and you know anybody who uh, following Rosmo's art from from like three four years ago uh, and the transitions and and the evolution, his art has evolved and he is getting better. And the guy, you know, for being as stylistic as he is, he does have, he does some amazing art. And, and even throughout his Robin run, there were some pages that the level of detail was there. But the style, it's very stylistic, fine. But the, the, the art was there and the talent is there. It's just finding the right comic for him. But I got to say, this is where, you know, 
this was a very good Superman story and, and it does complement Rosmo's art, which so anybody who's w wants to see Riley Rosmo at his best, I definitely encourage them to check this, this story out. And it's, it's kind of sad that it's sort of lost in this anthology that I fear that a lot of, not a lot of people will necessarily purchase. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and I, yeah, again, credit to Dave, uh, wise goals as well because uh, he does a fantastic job of of capturing the what makes the relationship between Clark Kent and his parents um, so great so mm -hmm. uh, maybe a certain director could have done with reading the story like that <laughs> uh, all right uh, so that does it for the books we're going to talk about in um, in detail there is also Harley Quinn the animated series Legion of Bats issue six which is out this week as well and then as far as anthologies go, Robin Volume 3, which collects Robin's uh, issue 13 through 17. That's a, the most recent Joshua Williamson run. Uh, Power Girl, Power Trip, Trade Paperback, which collects um, the uh, Amanda Connor and uh, Jimmy Palmiotti, Justin Gray, Jeff Johns era. Uh, it's just JSA Classified 1 through 4 and Power Girl 1 through 12. Uh, we also have Harley Quinn, Volume 3. This is the recent Stephanie Phillips run and the aforementioned Riley Rosmo on art. And then finally, the Multiversity Team Justice um, 1 through 6 series that we uh, highlighted as it came out monthly. It wasn't, wasn't particularly memorable, to be honest, but it did get better as it went along. And I think one of the things that Rocky and I both felt was consistent throughout and we praised was the passion that the two writers, Ivan Cohen and Danny Lore, have for those characters is uh, is pretty obvious throughout the series. So, um, so that does it for this week. Um, I think I already kind of spoiled it, what my book of the week is. Um, but I'll reiterate, Batman, One Bad Day, Ra's al Ghul for me was probably my favorite. Even though The World's Finest was probably my favorite issue of that. I thought Superman 2 was really, really good. Best issue of Black Adam so far. Um but yeah, I, th I think overall, the one uh, that will stick with me that I'll uh, think about is probably the Batman One Bad Day, Ra's al Ghul. So what are your thoughts uh, on your uh, favorite book? Well, I'm actually going to go a little bit of an outlier here. I, I want to give uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, Superman issue two. I thought was pretty good. But I'm uh, I, I actually really enjoyed uh, Black Adam, so I'm gonna give it to uh, Black Adam because I actually thought that uh, Christopher Priest, I thought he did a good job, sort of encapsulating the essence of Black Adam, and I think he's added something interesting to the lore. Just and uh, I, you know, I I was pleasantly surprised, but I, uh, but a definitely a strong runner-up to uh, uh, Joshua Williamson with Superman because he's he's really doing a bang-up job there, and Superman is pretty much a must-read. And like, how many times have we said, Jace? Uh, I think you said it more than me that you know where you know where Superman goes, DC follows, and when Superman's firing on all cylinders, even more so than Batman, even though DC's all Batman and mostly Batman comics, a strong Superman comic seems to lead to better days for DC. So hopefully that'll be the case moving forward. Yeah, uh, I agree. Um, like I said, uh, the fact that I'm enjoying both of them and they feel so different in tone, uh, both Superman titles is a, is a really good thing. So uh, anyway, that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, anything to tease, Rocky? 
You know, not really. I got a really busy week, so uh, probably uh, I, I might I, they'll probably do some. Some I'm behind on my indie review. Uh, Jason at Weird Science of the Get Fresh Crew. Him and I usually review indies. It's my fault, not his, that we haven't uh, reviewed some independent titles lately. But uh, hopefully, uh, we'll coordinate. My, I'll coordinate my schedule with him. We'll get an, in some indie comic uh, reviews uh, done this week. But we shall see. But I'm very busy. It's crazy at work. What about yourself? Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. I, I do have some um, crowdfunding spotlights that will be coming out probably later this week. So uh, other than that, yeah, just trying to – work's been so busy. Obviously, I've been traveling uh, so much. It's been hard to get caught up with everything. So uh, anyway, everybody, don't forget, if you're listening to us audio only, head over to YouTube, subscribe to Rocky's channel. Just search for comic space boom exclamation point. Once you're there, you know what to do. Leave some comments, ring the notification bell so you don't miss any content. Like this video, subscribe to the channel so you, as I said, you don't miss any content. Conversely, if you're checking us out on YouTube and looking at our smiling faces and you want to be sure not to miss out on any of those other interviews or audio only um, content from the comic source, just go to wherever you get your podcast to search for the comic source and subscribe. So that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. We appreciate you joining us as always, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.